This week, as you all know, True House Stories each and every week delivers you some of the best talent in our dance music community. And this week is no less of any other than to, I would love to welcome this production crew. But before we start, I want to thank you all for tuning into our podcasts on all the portals from Apple Music to Amazon everywhere, following the YouTubes, also sharing the show. Without all of you, there's no me and there's none of these guys because we all need your support all the time. And right now, just so you know, we're doing this on the love. I'm not getting no money for this. This is all for the love of what we do to share and keep this going. So I hunted down Paul and Russ and had a talk with them a week ago and said, guys, you need to do True House Stories because your story is as legendary as all the others. And they know this and I know that they, I know this, they know this, unless you live on their lapel from when they're kids growing up, you would never know their true stories. And this is why we asked them to come in. They've remixed countless records, produced so many records. I can't even count how many records. It's, it's ridiculous, okay? Some of the biggest superstars they remixed in the game from R&B, hip-hop, dance, all of the above. Played some of the biggest gigs in the continents, around the world. The international success. They have a track record that's proven. And now, like all of us, they're in the same situation grounded, at home, trying to work out what the next steps are going to be. So, without fail, i like to introduce Paul and Russ from K-Class. Welcome, fellas. Thank you so much for doing this. Hello there. <laughs> yeah. Thank so, you for the introduction, Lenny. You're yep. welcome. Welcome. I hope it was okay. I try to do the best <laughs> I can every time. You picked us up. <laughs> Okay, grounded mellet fellas, here we go. So this is the first question we ask everybody. We each know both of you have moms and dads, maybe here, no longer with us, but you, we, we know you were born. So from the moment from when you're a young little lad to when you get together, where does music find both of you? So you, each one you take, whichever wants to go first, please take the microphone. Shall I, shall I go first, Ross? Yeah, you go, you go. Yeah. That's about, this is going to be double questions on all of them, isn't it? I, I kind of I wasn't from the most musical family. I grew up, there was always music around, and lived in a small town called Chester, which is about 50 miles away from Manchester. Not a great deal going on there musically. Um, but, you know, for, from the age of 14, 15, I was going out buying records every weekend, you know, with my money that was given by my parents. You know, a lot of the spare money went to buying seven-inch singles, early things that were in. I mean, musically, it didn't come from a strict dance background. I remember buying sort of, you know, Blondie records and stuff like that in the late 70s and being really impressed with, you know, some of the, the breaks and, the, you know, the extended mixes and stuff like that. That really grabbed me. That was probably my first sort of introduction towards anything dance-based, really. And from there, that led me to bands like New Orbital, watching Joy Division, New Order, people like that, and um, then a certain ratio, which took me to working for bands, indie bands and stuff like that, wondering, sort of being a guitar roadie, um, selling merchandise for them, got me into the business. Um, 
and through touring with them, I stumbled across a night in London called The Trip, which was run by Nicky Holloway in 1988. Um, that was the first Acid House night I ever went to. Um, people in there said, oh, you're from Manchester. Do you know what I mean? You, you've got Hacienda on your doorstep. So I said, yeah, yeah, I've been there a couple of times, seen you order and things like that. Um, I went there um, on the first weekend I had off from touring with the band I was working for and my mind was blown. I fell in love and never looked back. That was probably February 1988 and I've not looked back since. Russ? Kind of similar-ish kind of journeys, but on different paths, really. I mean, my, me, both my mum and dad, and neither of them are here now, but um, my dad died when I was quite young and he, he was never really, he was never really a music person, but my mum, my mum was kind of, she, she kind of, um, she played organ in a, in a church choir with the church, um, but only for a bit. She, 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 she used to have the organ in the farm, because I lived on a farm and she used to have the organ in the farm. But she liked country and western, and um, but I was it was never that was never my thing, you know. She that was what she liked, and you know, and my kind of musical influences came from growing up at the age of probably the you know the the late seventies um, in the UK. There was a whole movement um, which was rekindled from the sixties of the mods and the rockers, and um, the whole mod sort of side of it had the Motown sound and I kind of got switched on to the Motown sound and was really taken from the soulful side of things on that. And then throughout the kind of early 80s, I kind of was more on the commercial side of things, you know, kind of almost following fashions to a degree. Um, the whole new romantic scene, kind of liking what was coming with that. Some of the electronic music that was sort of within the new romantic scene was was, was kind of mind-blowing, really. Um, and then probably about 86, 87, I, I was working in the Royal Mail, and I had a friend there, uh, and he's, we used to go to, to gigs together, um, just seeing live acts. And we got into following the Happy Mondays sort of quite yeah. early, and we went to a gig um, at, a, at one of the sort of venues in Manchester called uh, The Ritz, and the Happy Mondays were supporting James, who at the time, I, I was a big fan of both of the bands. And this was probably, this was probably, again, in, in again, parallel to Paul's, this was probably about February, March of 88, when this gig took place. And before the Happy Mondays came on stage, the, the DJ who was on was just playing this crazy acid house set. And I, I just turned to my mate and I said, this is incredible. And he said, you should come to the Hacienda on a Friday. It's like this all the time. So it took a couple of months or so. It's probably around about August of 88 when I first went to the Hacienda. I'd had a trip there. With a with we took a coach of us in 84, and we pretty much doubled the attendance because it was so empty when it very first opened. But to go back there in 88 was like, whoa, this is incredible. And I bumped into Paul. And on about, only about the second or third time I'd been there, I bumped into Paul and like we kind of knew each other. Um, we'd oh, known each other from watching football matches, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we'd kind of known each other from about 1983. 
and I'd not, but I'd not seen Paul for a couple of years. So I bumped into Paul. He was like, whoa, what are you doing here? We, go, we just got talking and we, we just said, Joe, you know what? Wouldn't it be great? We, we have no real musical background, but we said, wouldn't it be great to be able to make some music just like what's being played here? Yeah. And you know was, what? We kind of did. Yeah. <laughs> it was crazy, wasn't it? We, we, we re-met in the Hacienda, you know, after, you know, we knew each other, we loosely knew each other, we'd see each other in the hometown that we, that we, that we were brought up in. Obviously, Manchester's like sort of 40, 50 miles down the road from where we live. So we, you know, we, we met up in the Hacienda right at the peak when it was starting to explode. The whole scene had gone from being, you know, the Hacienda had been playing house music then since, well, basically since it existed. They were always hot on getting the imports and stuff in from Chicago and stuff like that. So, you know, even on nights where they'd play bits of indie music and guitar music, house music was always present there. But me and Russ met again there right at the peak when it was exploding, when numbers went from, you know, a couple of hundred to it being sold out every single week. And it was, it was an incredible time. I'd just been made redundant from the dead-end job that I had working for British Telecom, which is the telephone company over here. And I spent my redundancy money on buying a Roland TR505 and a cheap keyboard that wasn't even MIDI <laughs> at the time. Ross had some little bits of equipment and myself, Ross, and another guy who lived locally, Gary, were trying to make tracks and, you know, we were getting somewhere. They were sounding kind of right, but not like what we were Not quite right, were they? They weren't quite no. right. <laughs> they were a little bit wrong. <laughs> yeah. And then there was a, another smaller club night in our hometown of Chester on a Thursday night called the Blast Club, which played a mixture of funk, R&B, bits of hip-hop, and they'd have a good sort of hour, hour and a half during the night where they'd play pure house music. And one night they had um, 808 State coming in there to play live, which was like a really big thing for the small city of Chester. So we're like, oh, yeah, we definitely want to go and watch that. So we got there, and there was a support band on, and <laughs> two guys from Wrexham, or three guys from Wrexham called Interstate. And we watched them, and we were like, Wow. They've got it. They've got the proper sound. Do you know what I mean? That sounds like house music. That sounds like the techno that we're hearing from Detroit. That's everything that we want to be making. So we got chatting to them. And then the very next night, this was on the Thursday night, on the very next night, we made our usual Friday night pilgrimage to the Hacienda. Um, I think me and Ross, we went together by then, didn't we? So we'd start yeah, sharing. Yeah. You know, sharing wait, 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 hang on, hang on. Before you get to that point, you said the studio. Where is this so-called lab that you both are starting to work out of? Whose house? Where is this? It was on, it was we, on the floor. It was on the floor in Russ's mom's house in the back room. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Russ's yeah. mom's like, Russ's studio. Okay, got yeah. it. Yeah. It, but it was, like, it was literally, as Paul says, it was on the floor. Yeah. yeah. Like keyboards and stuff laid out on the floor and played through hi-fi speakers in the house. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was our studio. So yeah, we got a learning curve. Yeah, it was a learning curve. Starting point. So let me understand this. So nobody went to any classes. There was no YouTube oh, to learn anything. Absolutely nothing. We, no. we didn't. We didn't have. A, I mean, this the, the, us not having a clue what we were doing continued probably right up until we had our first hit records. To be honest <laughs> yeah. with you, and we we had, we had like oh, I said, we had a Roland TR five hundred five. We had a Korg Poly eight hundred, which we could actually manage to MIDI those together. Yeah. Uh, 
some Yamaha keyboard that wasn't even MIDI. Well, did you had something else as well, didn't you, Russell? Well, I think you had the room and the hi-fi speakers. What was it? Did, was it something like the Yamaha SY22 or something like that? Like that, quite a bit no, later. that's later. SY series is later. Yeah, right. So, but we, we had some equipment that we basically had no idea how to use, but we were making noises that sounded vaguely like house music. <laughs> and then the, we met these guys from Wrexham. So we'd seen them play in Chester. And then the very next night, we're all in the Hacienda. And lo and behold, we bump into them again. Anyway, this night in the Hacienda is inspirational, as usual. This time we were hearing all this brand new music that had just never been, nothing like it had ever been heard anywhere before. You know, it sounded like, to, to us, coming from a small town like Chester, this music sounded like it, was, it had come from another planet, do you know what I mean? But what we did know, it was absolutely awesome. So, so hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. So who's the DJ when you go to Hacienda that night? Ex give us the experience of you two euphorically wa walking in the whole deal. Mike Pickering and Graham Park. Yeah, and it was it was like it was like a, it's almost like walking into a cathedral when you walked into that place. We'd go to the pub over the road, wait for the queue to start building up. As soon as the queue started building up, we'd be over in the queue and into the venue. You walked into there. It was almost industrial. The entrance to the club, and um, it was modelled. The venue, the actual pub itself, was modelled on a lot of New York clubs at the time because Tony Wilson, who owned the venue, and New Order, who were involved, had all been to places, you know, like Paradise Garage, stuff like that, Loft and stuff in New York, Playhouse. They'd, they'd been to all of these places and come back and took their inspiration of what they'd seen in New York, the clubs there, and tried to create something in Manchester. Now, when they first created it in the mid-'80s, it was years ahead of its time, and it was years ahead of Manchester, to be honest, at that point. Um, like I say, we went there in 84, and it was yeah. literally, we, we took a coach, 50 of us on the coach, and we more than doubled the attendance, didn't yeah. yeah, the club, the club at that time was, like I said, was ahead of Man was ahead of the people in Manchester. And then the population of Manchester, when house music exploded, the, the population grew into the venue. So by the time we were going in 88, it was just truly special in there. There was one magical thing that they used to do, and it was so simple. They hung pretty much, as you went in through the foyer area, and they hung on the entrance, huge refrigeration, plastic sheets. And yeah, so you go into a refrigeration area. So you've got this real dull... <laughs> but you open the sheets and it all came to life, all the higher, everything... So, because you're only getting the dull thump, first of all, through yeah. the refrigeration sheets. And then you walk through them and it was like, it just came to life. And it was, whoa. Yeah. And they had the thing of where the lights didn't come on properly until midnight. And at midnight, the lights just, would all just kick in. And it was just, it was all done to timing to perfection to make the night just yeah. perfect. And, you know, you, you're talking here about two young kids who were like sort of, you know, 19, 18, 19, 20 around that time. That had come from a small town, and we'd yeah, we'd been to venues, we'd seen bands play and stuff like that, but we'd never seen anything like this. You walked into that venue, and the sound, you know, you hear people say the same thing about walking into the garage and stuff like that for the first time. You know, the sound in there, the light, and it was just like a sensory overload. And as the music and you know, obviously the ecstasy thing turns up, which then sends the place up to another level again, and. You know, by the middle of 88, it was crazy. And that was the point where we bumped into Carl and Andy, the two guys from Wrexham again, on one of these legendary night outs there that we had. 
obviously in the UK then, because of licensing laws, everything finishes at 2am in the morning. So 2am comes, we're chatting to these guys who we'd seen play the night before as a support act for 808 State, and we're saying, you know what, to be honest, you guys, we, we like you more than them. Do you know what I mean? You've got the real deal. You sound like house music. And then, he said, well, why don't you come back to our studio in Wrexham? So we went straight from the club, maybe a little bit happier than <laughs> you'd normally be, and wide awake, into their studio, um, which was basically a spare room in someone's house, and they had a Roland TR909. They switched that on, and that was the deal changer. We heard yeah. that. That's what we're hearing on the records. That's what we're after. And starting that night, we started work on four demo tracks, which took shape over the course of that night till about 6 a.m. in the morning. Then we came back during the week, and then about a week and a half, two weeks later, we'd finished four demo tracks, which we mastered onto a TDK chrome cassette. <laughs> um, because we couldn't afford the money to hire well, the real machine. Would, would it be even fair to say we mastered them? They were <laughs> well, full mastered them. We, re we recorded them. Yeah. We recorded them yeah. onto a TDK chrome cassette. <laughs> and without a name for these tracks and without a name for the band, they were just track one, two, three, and four. We took them into Eastern Block Records in Manchester. Now, this was the record, one of two or three probably big record stores in Manchester at the time. Um, and, you know, the, the, the thing that used to be, we'd go to the Hacienda Friday night, we'd hear all this great music, and then Saturday, if we didn't stay in Manchester at an after-party, we'd go home, then we'd return to Manchester Saturday afternoon, and we'd tour um, spinning records, Piccadilly records, but most of all, Eastern Block records was the place to go. And we took this demo tape into them and said, you know, if you've got five minutes, could you have a listen to this? You know, we just want your opinion on it. So they took us downstairs into the office. They played it on the system down there. And they said, right, guys, this is absolutely brilliant. We want to release this as it is. And what's your band name? So, well, <laughs> yeah. I have got one. So what are, you, what are your tracks called? And um, so, well, they haven't got names either. <laughs> one, two, three, and four. Three, tracks, three, tracks, four. So they said, well, you're going to have to think of a name for your band. So... <laughs> We sat there, we couldn't think of anything. So I so know what we'll do, we'll get a dictionary and we'll let it fall open on a page. And whatever page it falls open on, <laughs> the word on the top left-hand page is the word that we're going to base the band around, the name of the band around. So we got the dictionary, we let it fall open on a random page, it fell open on M, and the word was masturbation. <laughs> so... <laughs> So you would have been you would have been employing masturbations. <laughs> wait, 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 hard masturbation. <laughs> so, so then I think we actually thought then we actually better think about this then. And so you know who else did that? You know who else? You know who else did that same technique? The Commodores. They yeah. did the same thing. They they had they did the same thing. They whatever it drops, mm. they're gonna go with that name. But lucky for them, they yeah. got this, it was called Commodore. They grabbed and they called themselves the Commodores, but you guys were masturbations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but Paul, Paul came up with the name proper. Um, obviously, he, he, he had a, a there's a little story behind actually where the name did come from, which uh, Paul will tell you because it's quite a cool little story, yeah. really. 
Well, we're, we're inspired by a UK radio DJ who's an absolute legend, a guy called John Peel, who, again, is no longer with us. And he used to play all kinds of crazy music right across the board from sort of thrash metal, hardcore, punk, to indie music, to folk music, to anything. If it was not mainstream and it was not what was being played on mainstream radio, he'd support it. And um, he, at the time, he kept on going on about American hip-hop bands spell, spelling their name with a K, which was obviously a rebellious thing with the American hip-hop bands. So we kind of took the lead from that, really, and just uh, worked around K and K-class. There was no greater meaning to the word or no other meaning to the band name other than that. We did later find out that K-class was a type of steam-powered submarine and was it the First or Second World War? First World War. It was First World War. First World War. Now, what yeah. you've got to understand is that steam power and under the water in submarines yeah. together. These were the least successful type of submarine ever. And um, apparently there was 20 of them built. And within 10 years, every single one of the K-class submarines either crashed, blew up, exploded or were destroyed. The final two of them were destroyed when K-11 was coming off repair at Barrow, which is a port in the north of England, sailing out into the sea on a test run. Another one was sailing back in to be scrapped and they crashed into each other off the coast and both sank. And there was actually a book written about them and the book was called, with lots of the about was called K-Class and there's a summing up line in the book that without doubt K-Class were a total and utter disaster. We actually had a copy of the book, but we so you're already <laughs> So you're already starting on a really strong... Good, yeah, we started good, high. Right? Really strong... <laughs> Perfectly laid out. Here's going to be the next 25, 30 years of our life. A total, <laughs> yeah. total non-success, blown yeah. up. We've, we've, our whole life is based around self-depreciation. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, what happened with those four tracks eventually after that? Um, we came up with the name K-Class. It became the Wildlife EP. Um but how, wait, 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 hang on. But how lucky were you? You went to your first record label. Mm, you yeah. asked them to say, can you give it a listen? Mm. Can you give us your opinion? You weren't thinking about signing it yet. You were thinking yeah. it was even decent. And next thing you know, you have a contract on it. Yeah. 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 Literally, that simple. So crazy, said, yeah. They said, we'll put it out like this. And so, well, you can't put it out off a chrome cassette. We go, we can. And it's like, well, no, we don't want to do that. So we actually went away. And you know, saved up some money between us and stuff like that, and hired a reel-to-reel -reel tape machine to, to sort of record it onto a proper reel-to-reel, -reel so they could take it away and cut it from that. Um, which we did. The, the process of doing that took about another four months or so, and then it was released as the Wildlife EP. Um, of, you know, in all this as well, it needs mentioning that the, the two guys from Wrexham, uh, Andy Williams and Carl Thomas were a massive, massive part of this. Do you know what I mean? Andy was the main engineer. They were doing, at that stage, the bulk of the work. Do you know what I mean? They were doing the hands-on programming. Mm -hmm. you know, Andy especially was the engineer, do you know what I mean? And we, we learned from him. Carl was the keys player. And, you know, and me and Russ would pitch in with our bits of equipment and our ideas and our structural ideas and, you know, the vibe and the way we should be taking the things. So all of a sudden, K-Class was formed as a four-piece unit. And the Wildlife EP, out of nowhere, went on to have huge success. I mean, listening back now, it wasn't the most technically amazing thing in the world, you know what I mean? But that little house music and that little homegrown UK house music around at that time, that it did really, really well. I think it reached like, you know, they were just taking 65, 
Reach 65, Paul. 65 in the national yeah. charts for lead track yeah. off there to Wildlife Reach. And that was with no promotion and them just taking them around on the back of vans and selling them into record stores around the country. And then, yeah, that was a massive success. So straight away then, they come back to us and they say, right, we want the follow-up. So this time we said, right, okay, for our follow-up, we're going to do a vocal track. Um, and so we, we were working with a, an engineer in Manchester, a guy called Mark Stagg, um, who was producing a lot of the early house music you know, that was coming out of Manchester at that time. He was mixed engineering it. And we said, we're looking for a vocalist. Um, can you find us someone? He goes, yeah, I've got just the person for you. A girl called Bobby Dapperswar. She's amazing. She's young. She's fresh. She's up for it. She understands house music. She's been a fan of the music for years, you know, probably before us. Because um, she she sort of lived in Manchester, do you know what I mean? The, she was immersed in sort of like you know hip hop, R and B, and house music before most people even knew what it was. And we were introduced to her, and we said, "Yeah, let's make a vocal track," which turned into "Rhythm Is a Mystery." But the, the funny story with "Rhythm Is a Mystery" is we went into the studio to record that with nothing. We hadn't laid Absolutely down the beat. nothing. Absolutely nothing. Not a, not not even a drum beat. So right now it's just like wait wait wait. Let, let's make everybody understand at home what's going on here. Right. So we all end up going to a place to meet. Yeah. We bring the vocalists together. We all go there. And we go. Okay. Now we think about let's start. So yeah, where yeah, yeah. begin? This, well, this was the whole yeah, it's important. It's important that this wasn't a home studio as well. This was a studio we were paying for by the hour. So we went in there with nothing, not even an idea of what we want to do or how to write a song. Yeah. We were just completely naive. We could barely string three chords together. And we once said, well, the vocalists coming, we've not even met Bobby before. She was coming in in the afternoon at 3 p.m. And we were in there at 10 a.m. with nothing, no lyrics, no nothing. So where do we start writing the songs? So we all get a pen and a piece of paper. We threw some beats down, which was very much sort of Derek May, Juan Atkins, just raw 909, very, very busy hi-hat patterns. You know, Casio VZ1 hollow bass sound, I think, was in it off this keyboard here. Yeah. Um, which was like a very, very I, much... I think we used like a percussive kind of loop as well, didn't we? Kind of yeah. just a rhythmic kind of percussive loop within there. That was on the remix, wasn't it? That on was on the remix. Yeah, on the very first version. The very was, first version, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was all programmed, nine, raw 909 yeah. programmed. Loads of, we had like loads of stuff in MIDI chains, like a, a 626, 727, you know, the rhythm composer machines playing conga patterns and crazy stuff like that. A lot of percussion, no real chords, and a bass sound um, off the Casio VZ101, which was similar to things like Rhythm is Rhythm, The Dance, and Beyond the Dance. It was very much... That kind of vibe, the very first version of Rhythm is Are a Mystery. Are we talking about Rhythm is Rhythm from Transmat Records? That Rhythm yeah, is Rhythm? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All the Detroit yeah. techno sounding stuff. Yeah. This, this, that's what was influencing us at that time. That was where we wanted to be. And the so very wait, wait, first. So we're at home. So we're going to Hacienda. We're, we're going all the clubs around town. Yes. And you guys, the English, were making this music coming out of Detroit. An yep. international sensation yep. because even here it was not happening. It was so underground. Yeah. Oh no, yeah. the, the big sound in the Hacienda, the, you know, the sort of breakthrough sound, especially towards the end of 88, 
as well as all the Chicago House and all Marshall stuff and stuff like that. You know, they'd be playing that, mixed in with old Salsoul stuff, you know, things like Love Sensation and stuff like that. You know, 10% tracks like that would get dropped in and mixed amongst all the houses. You know, it was a real, for the time, it was a really advanced, you know, sort of, you know, musical, you know, musical playlist in there. But towards the end of 88, when all the Acid House things, you know, like Dumb Magic Feet and all kinds of crazy tracks like that started coming through, future Acid tracks and stuff like that. Also, the Detroit sounds, you know, were, were really, really popular in there. And that, at first, was what was influencing us, wasn't it, Ross? Yeah, yeah. Joan Atkins, Derek May, Kevin Saunders, and them guys. Yeah. yeah. So the very first version of Rhythm is a Mystery was based around sort of techno rhythm and it's, you know techno beats and stuff like that. And then we just literally threw a vocal over the top of it. So we're on the studio session. We've got no idea how to write a song. So we're like, where do we start? So we've got pieces of paper. We start trying to write stuff down. Nothing was coming. We were that desperate. In the end, I think we went over the road to the news agents and bought a copy of the Guardian newspaper, which had an art section in, and we were just reading through words in there, trying to come up with something, anything to start. And then there was something about a mystery, something or other was in there. We said, how about rhythm? You know, we've got all this rhythm going on. How about rhythm as a mystery? And we started cobbling a song together. Mm. The very first version of rhythm as a mystery is not as people know that track now. It was like a very freestyle kind of thing. The chorus wasn't there. It was just a load of random vocals. Just a load of lines, in. wasn't it? Just a load of lines. It's like a Todd, early Todd Terry freestyle production with like a load of... We haven't, we haven't, we haven't even worked out verses and choruses or anything like that. It was just a rhythm track with some singing over the top of it. And again, we released that. That was even more popular, even in that format. That was released as like a four-track EP with some other tracks on it again. That one got even closer to the charts. I think that one just missed the top 40. I think there's something like about 54 it went to. So Eastern Block Records yeah. said to us, go away, take some time looking at this track because we think it's got potential. Can I, go away. Can I intervene make... for a second? Can I intervene? Was that Neil Rushton at Eastern Block? No, no. No, he, was, he, had, he had a label called Network Records. That's right. It wasn't Neil. Who, who was at Eastern, Eastern Block? Block. Was run, there was, was, there was Mikey Block, there Mikey. was uh, John, John, oh. what's John, John what's John's surname? There was Mikey Block, John, John, and then yeah, um, an 808 State as well were involved in the label as well, weren't they, Martin Price? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah uh, Martin Price, yeah. Mike Kerwin was one of them and there was John E. Block as well. Um, but they, they said to us after this track got so close to the charts they said this track's got potential go away and do like a more structured version of it now round about that time in the hacienda again the you know things were moving at a pace in there the music that graham park and mike pickering were playing in there was moving at a real pace and it shifted on now from the detroit techno stuff and the, the italian there was a lot of italian italian italio disco kind of influences coming through things like capella work it to the bone Lots of the early Italian piano stuff, FBI project, you know, Rich in Paradise, stuff like that would coming absolutely huge in there. So we said, right, when we do this new mix, we're going to take some of the influence of what we're hearing here and we're going to put some pianos in it, which is what we did. Then we sort of took one of the lines out of the track and sort of sampled it and repeated it. Move your body, 
move your body to the rhythm of love, which was just on our sample keys from the original vocal. So right now we've got a chorus. So what else can we do? So let's put a sax break in, mimicking the vocal line from the verse. We'll use a sax break, which we just don't you know. It wasn't real sax. It was just a Korg M1 sax. We put the sax break in. We didn't know how to program the chords underneath it, so we sampled a C minor seventh chord on the sampler. We got like a profit sort of synth sound. We sampled the C minor seventh, and then we used the sample triggers for that just on single notes to play up and down the keyboard to put the pads behind the sax breaks. We didn't know how to play the pads. It turns out that the piano chords we used in the verse aren't proper piano chords, but they work. They were just <laughs> two finger notes, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. But it all worked and came together. Um, we got um, we had a, a guy called Matthew Roberts, who was another local DJ who came in and he helped us lay the beats down. He came in with some brilliant drum loops and stuff like that, some good percussive loops that went under it. And between all of us, we came up with what is rhythm is a mystery now that as everybody knows it there was no automation on the desks or anything in those days i think they had like something like a four track sequencer running off an atari which could sequence bits of it but the rest of that mix down was put down with four of us on the desk with our hands on mute buttons muting and unmuting pieces like there's even mistakes on the last chorus on it listen there's a crash symbol that's in all the other choruses which doesn't come in until halfway through the last chorus on there because we didn't unmute it in time. But after about 15 attempts, we managed to get it down in one pass. You know, absolutely no sequencing. It was all done manually on the desk. And that was, we delivered that back to Eastern Block. They absolutely flipped. In the meantime, we'd started touring and playing live every weekend. And had been from day one, really, just taking our sequencers out and stuff like that and doing these long, shambling live sets that could, you know, tracks, because they were being sequenced live, could go on for like 20 minutes sometimes. We couldn't figure out how to finish them. It was very much jammed live. But we, by the time Rhythm is a Mystery came out, we sort of structured the tracks more, and they had a beginning, middle, and an end kind of thing. But we, we hadn't been to the Hacienda. We'd been missing out going there for quite a time now, because we were busy... Well, you'd have the gang, hadn't you? Yeah. You'd have the trouble. You'd have the yeah. trouble kind of yeah. interrupted yeah. there. Yeah, it wasn't just that, was it? It was the fact that we were out playing live every week. Yeah, that, 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 yeah that's part of it. But I know the, the trouble kind of did kind of stop it, things as well a little bit. Weeks, you know. First of all, didn't it? But that was why yeah. we were out. Sorry. Then they sorted that out, it reopened again there. And then we got word that. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's, let's make everybody understand that the trouble, I know what the trouble was. Yeah. What was yeah. the reason why that trouble was happening at the Hacienda? What was truly going on? It's um, uh, like as most things within Clubland, it's based over control of the door. Yeah. Well, drugs especially. When, when, I mean, you know, there's no getting away from it. Drugs were a massive part of that place. Do you know what I mean? Especially from 88 onwards. You know, that was what was fueling the club. The bar takings in there were zero. They, they, you know, there was no money going over the bar. It's just soft drinks and people taking drugs. At first, the people that were supplying the chemical enlightenment in there were kind of nice people that were all party people that were just providing service. But they started making an awful lot of money. And then as soon as they started making a lot of money, local people who weren't as nice got wise to the fact there was a lot of money being made there and decided they were going to take over that trade themselves. And it was the way they muscled into the place 
and replaced the door team and contr started controlling the place that caused all the problems in there. Yeah. And so the third shot what led to their kind of a shutdown. Yeah. And that was through sort of beginning of 91, I think, wasn't it? But um, yes, it was the end, the end of 1990, start of 91, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. But then yeah. when it reopened, they cleaned the place up, they got a new door team in, and everything was great again in there for a time. It was, you know, it was for absolutely... For a moment. For a moment. For a moment. Yeah. <laughs> but the, we got wind while we weren't going to, we were out playing live every weekend, that like Mike Pickering and Graham Park are playing your track in there. And that... I forgot to mention this in the first place. The only reason we started making music in the first place was we wanted, we had no ambition to be a band. We had no ambition to be DJs. We had no ambition to be anything. We just wanted to hear our track played in the Hacienda. That's all we wanted. Wildlife EP never got played in there. And frankly, it's probably because it wasn't good enough, to be dead honest. Yeah. We knew Rhythm is a Mystery would get played in that, and then the word comes back to us, said, your record is blowing up in the Hacienda. So the first Saturday night that we're not out gigging, doing our live thing, we go to the Hacienda. The four of us are stood up on the balcony at about 12.30 at night. The place is just starting to really pick up and go off. The lighting's kicked in. All of a sudden, you hear the tom fill at the start of Rhythm is a Mystery, one of the tom drum, tom drum fills come in, as, as Mike picked up. I was going park, was it was mixing it in. The like little ripple of appreciation goes up around the club. The next 16 bars later, the next Tom Phil comes in. The arpeggio, the synth arpeggio comes in. There's a cheer goes up in the club. There's like people know what this track is. Do you know what I mean? You could feel the atmosphere building. Then 16 bars later, there's the next Tom Phil. The piano kicks in, and the only way I, I get emotional even thinking about it now, the only way I can describe it was like someone pouring petrol on a barbecue. The entire place just went up. The reaction that, and all four of us stood there on the balcony, looked at each other with our jaws on the floor, and went, "Oh my God, what have we done? This changes everything." And at that point, that was the point where it stopped being a hobby and turned into a job because it exploded. It was like just to go to go, just go back a little minute. There's a little story from when we we finished recording it in the studio in Stockport. And on the Sunday night as we came out, I remember standing with Carl outside his car because he broke the key on his car. He couldn't get into his car because he broke the blue key as he was trying to get in after we'd finished the session. And we were stood there talking and we were like, do you reckon that's any good then, the, the mix that we've done of it? And he was like, yeah, that'll do all right, that. That should do all right. <laughs> how little did we know how all right that track would do? Yeah. It, it was just crazy. It exploded and... and it went on to be, you know, there was a lot of competition that year. There was a lot of big records around that year, but it went on to be one of the biggest records in the Hacienda that year. It built and built and built. You couldn't get the record. It was released, sort of very limited edition, um, and then pulled by the record label because they were getting interest from major labels to sign it. Um, so the demand over the summer for that record just grew and grew and grew. People wanted it, you know, the DJs that had, you know, and let's not forget in these days, if you didn't have a record in these days, if you didn't physically own it, there was no YouTube, there was no internet. Yeah. If, you want, if you wanted to hear that track, you had to go to a club where a DJ who actually owned that piece of vinyl was playing if you even wanted yeah. to hear it. Do you know what I mean? That's what made that era so special. It would make people come out to, if you wanted to hear a certain track, you had to go and hear, watch a certain DJ play because that was the only way you were hearing it. You might get little bits of radio. And there were certain warnings, what the fuck? 
Yeah. There was warnings put out to a couple of the distributors not to bootleg it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I bet, I bet those phone calls went out to them because everybody knows who they are. Yeah. <laughs> the usual suspects. We all know who they were back in yeah. the day. So people politely told that we we deal politely. with them like it's and love. Yeah, yeah. Amongst all the love and peace and unity that we're going on there, just basically like this. Don't fucking do anything to screw this up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Basically, that was that was pretty much yeah. it. Yeah. So, <laughs> long story short. So now, so we, as this record's bubbling and going nuts, what major yeah. labels are asking for the record now? Because I know it must have been a bidding war beginning. There was. There was a few labels involved. There was FFRR, London Records, and. An indie label called Dead Dead Good, who had massive success with bands like the Charlatans and stuff like that. They wanted to sign it. And most of all, Mike Pickering's record label, the label that Mike Pickering was involved with, was Deconstruction. Um, Decon. Decon. Exactly. Now, we liked them, and they liked us. We liked their way of working. Do you know what I mean? They weren't like a major label. Do you know what I mean? Well, you know, they, they had Black Box. They had a lot of big... big uh, yeah. They they discovered Daniel Davily for God's sake. Yeah. There's a there's a funny little story regarding um, rhythm as a mystery and the bass heads. Is there anybody out there as well? Yeah, because yeah, well, yeah, that, well, we'll come round to that. But the, the the whole thing was, I mean, we signed to Deconstruction, who were, who were, at the time were distributed via BMG. Our track and the bass heads. Is there anybody out there? Was signed around about the same time. And these tracks were played to the distribution people at BMG who were doing their distribution at the time. We were obviously a big distribution company. And they said, oh, we're not feeling these tracks. They're not going to work for us. So Deconstruction broke away from their deal and went to EMI Parlophone. They heard these two tracks and said, wow, yeah, we'll distribute. We'll do a deal, sub deal with Decon and put these out ourselves. And when the records were both at number three and number four, respectively, in the charts, frankly, there was a big thing on the notice board in BMG Music with a picture of the Music Week chart with our two tracks circled in highlighter pen and please explain written underneath well, to the I'm, A&R team. Paul, do you remember the story round about that time that part of it was to do with they played not the correct versions to BMG because yeah. they wanted to deal with Parlophone and it was oh, kind of... Oh, wait, wait, so there's, so there's a back-end story to this. Oh, I knew there was something not right yeah. about it. Sure, there's probably a lawsuit in this. Wait, wait, so let's go back in time. No, I'm only so saying, they wanted I'm saying, I'm saying it definitely happened. What I'm saying yeah. is, it was rumoured to be happening. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's the myth. <laughs> yeah. You're talking about 30 years ago this happened. So these people, a lot of these people are no longer with us anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so the, you know, the, the long, long, long and short of it was that it, it was finally released anyway on in November of two, of nineteen ninety one, and by then you know everyone's saying oh, it's going to do really really good, but as per usual we had no faith in you know in our in ourselves or anything we did at the time, and then I think it had been released. Yeah, you know, we didn't. The first midweek chart position came through on a Tuesday. We'd all got, um, Russ was still working, my ad at this time. I'd given up, well, I'd been made redundant. I didn't have a job anymore, so this was my full-time job. Russ at the time was still working as a postman for the mail service, delivering letters to people. So the other three of us, Carl and Andy, 
who again was still in sort of part-time employment by that time. We'd gathered in our manager's office to get the midweek position. And the first midweek came through and it was number six on the first midweek. It had gone straight into the charts on the midweek chart position at number six. And we're like, wow. So we pick up the phone, James Barton, who later went on to run Cream and now works for, well, worked for Live Nation and now he's got his own venture again. He's been massively successful in the scene. James Barton was our manager by this point. He phones Russ up to say, to give him the midweek like chart position. Now, we have the clearest day, remember, say, say, saying to Russ, he goes, well, what is it then? He said to Russ, you're sitting down. And Russ, Russ goes, yeah, I'm all right. And sat down. James goes, it's 41. And Russ goes, oh, that's all right. So a bit disappointed. He goes, no, it's not. It's not actually 41. I'm lying. It's 20. And Russ goes, oh, yeah, that's all right. He goes, no, I'm actually lying again. It's actually number six. And Russ goes, yeah, that's all right. <laughs> and James yeah, is so in the office going, to go, all right, all right. To further on from that. It's all right. Yeah, yeah, to further on from that. It's all right. I've, 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 never, I've never been one to get that excited about stuff, to be honest with you. But I'll, I'll just rewind as well a little bit back about Rhythm is a Mystery. Um, to go back to the August of that, that summer of 91. Um, in the UK, this shows how big dance music had become in the summer of 91. Because the national radio station, which was Radio 1, had a guy, a DJ called Gary Davis, who, who had taken his... Is, uh, he was on summer leave and they had the Pet Shop Boys on the show for that week. They were actually, you know, presenting the show. And on the Friday, they had Sasha at lunchtime on national radio doing a guest DJ mix. And he did a double copy mix of Rhythm is a Mystery on the show, which again, that again holds so much sort of help yeah, because it, it was the first on national radio and at, at the lunchtime as well on that, that yeah. time. On daytime national radio in the UK as well, this was unheard of. Yeah, at this point. you know things like that didn't happen, so that helped the track blow up. So the first midweek was number six. I think it eventually went in at number four. And they told us at that point that we needed to go in and edit a seven-inch, no, seven-inch instrumental version of it. We didn't know why they were asking us to do this. They just asked us to do it. So we went into a studio in Liverpool. We were editing this seven-inch instrumental, because obviously we'd done the seven-inch sort of, yeah, the radio edit of it, but we hadn't made a seven-inch instrumental of it. And it was like, why on earth do they want us to do this? So we were in the studio in Liverpool working on an AMS audio file, which was like a two-track digital editor, which was like state-of-the-art at the time. And then the phone call came through, uh, came through, BBC have been on, they want you to do Top of the Pops this week with it. And it was like, this is absolutely crazy, we're going to be on national TV with our track. You know, top of the pops in those so, days. So K Class is now a boy band. Yeah, yeah kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And prior, prior to that, I was <laughs> still at the post office. I always remember when we got the midweek um, at that midweek chapter. There were some of the guys who I was friends with in in the post office, and in the morning you'd go into into the office to collect your, your delivery, and then you take it out. And I remember sort of talking to these guys on th that week, and they were saying. They knew that the track was coming out, but they didn't know that you got a midweek chart position. They were saying, oh, you're going to be a postie for life. You're going to be stuck in here. You're a lifer in the, in, the, in the post office. You ain't getting out. And one of the funniest things was just turning around to them saying, yeah, say what you like, lads. We've just got a midweek and number six. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just one of them little moments that I always remember. 
And Paul, we went in at number nine on our first week because we always oh. always went uh, went in one place below. Always look on the bright side of life. So, yeah. so before we go any <laughs> further, you're in the in the studio in Liverpool. You're making a seven-inch edit. Phone rings. You're number nine, technically. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Number nine. Yeah. Now. Who says to you you're gonna go and do top of the pops? And what's the feeling between both of you? Like, what are you thinking? Top <laughs> first of all, how big was top of the pops to show the BBC huge. Top of the pops? Huge. Oh, huge. Anyone in the UK will know how big that show was for people in the States and elsewhere that probably don't get it as much. This was the be all and end all. It was the its viewer figures were enormous. It was just like the chart rundown. Of what you know, and had been for years. It was it was the bible of what was current in the pop charts at the time, and you know it was it was a big deal. A lot of you know indie bands and alternative kind of bands used to claim that going on top of the pops was selling out. But the second that any of them got chance to get on there, <laughs> they, they were all on like a rat up a drainpipe. I don't think anyone ever refused going on there. Yeah. Uh, so you know, for us it was a massive deal. You know, you, you knew once you'd been on there. But the record was a going to fly even more than mm. b you know, you'd be set up for a couple of years worth of work at that point i mean even when we did top of the pops the first time with rhythm is a mystery and uh, everybody else was going to the after party afterwards to go and party and stuff like that you know they'd have an after show party we had to get load all our stuff back in the van and get ross home because he was back out the next morning at six o'clock in the morning delivering letters because he hadn't given that, his was, that was a surreal experience what happened then was for me, I, I kind of um, I stayed on for another week on at Royal Mail because what they did, they, they had this option where they would offer you, um, you could take six months leave, um, kind of unpaid, but you, you would just basically, you could just go off and do what you wanted to do for six months. Now, leading up to this, we were obviously, we, we'd become sort of big news, you know, new, new act straight into the charts. And I can remember one day, I was walking down the stairs in, in, in the post office on from the break, and I was reading in the newspaper, in the gossip section of the newspaper, that doctors had ordered me to take a break, that I was suffering from nervous exhaustion. And I'm reading this about myself in the paper, and I'm like, wow, I'm apparently suffering from nervous exhaustion here. And it was just, it was so surreal. It was just surreal. And then when we kind of, obviously, we've done something, like I say, I can, I can still remember that first putting the letter through the letterbox, that first delivery, the day after Top of the Pops, it was like the most surreal moment because you've gone from doing something that is like on national TV to just back to delivering letters. And it was just the most, like I say, it was just a surreal time. It really was. And um, so I took the six months leave um, and I've never been back to tell them that I'm, I'm actually leaving. So theoretically, I'm still kind of employed by the Royal Mail, theoretically. Well, Tommy, so when are you going back? So when are you going back? It's kind of, it's coming up to 30 years now, so... Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Give, it, give it another month the way things are at the moment, and you'll be knocking on the door. <laughs> I know, I could retrain. I could retrain and be a postman. You've got the first step up the ladder already. I know, I'm going to retrain and become a postman. <laughs> See, that's the story we all love. Is same like with Marshall Jefferson. He also, as well, yeah. and all the fellas worked in the Chicago Post Office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 All this, I, yeah. this well, post that's... office thing. 
we had that conversation with Marshall because obviously we worked with Marshall. We did a track with Marshall, which is something further up down the line we'll come to. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. You were post office. I was working for British Telecom, which was like the telephone yeah. company. Carl was. And Carl was delivered lab. fish. Carl yeah. delivered fish, didn't he? Yeah. And he was a lab technician. And poor old Carl delivered fish on the fish van, which obviously. Yeah. Music business was a big step up from that. <laughs> so I bet it was. I bet it was. This is a life-changing experience. You're reading your, about yourselves in newspapers now. Yeah, yeah, Music yeah. is all over Radio 1. I mean, talk yeah. about going from trash to gold. Think about yeah. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly that. Yeah. Exactly that. We, we left school, both of us, at a time. Like, both left. You were 83, I was 84. Yeah. And the area that we lived in, all the heavy industry around there. There was a big car plant around there, a big steel plant around there that produced like you know steel for heavy industry, and the whole lot was getting stripped back and closed and shut down. So when we left school, we were basically told we'd amount to nothing. We won't get a job. There was nothing for us. Do you know what I mean? You had no prospects, no career, no nothing. And you know, when I was made redundant from my job, there was no help from the government or anything like that. It was just. So you had to go and do something for yourself. So we did, yeah, we did go and do something for ourselves. We went and did this. We had no idea that it would be successful, but we threw everything at it and we went for it. And, you know, thank God we did. Yeah. Wow. I also yeah, remember, my, my, I, I had a conversation with my mum, God rest her soul. And at the time I said to her, I said, mum, I said, listen, right, you, you know, you know, we're in the charts here. What, 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 what are you saying? Because, We've got a chance here of, of doing something, but I said, I don't know how long it will be. I said, but I know I've got a job for life at the Royal Mail. What, what, what would you say to do? And do you know what my mum said to me? She didn't tell me to do one or the other. She said to me, do you know what? You live once, follow your path. Yeah. And that was all I needed. You live once, you get one chance at things. And, and that's what, that, that's always stuck with me, you know, and God bless the soul, that's what's, that's stuck with me to the day. She, you know, still stays with me now. And the, the crazy thing is, as well, when we had that hit record with that, if you'd have said to us that 30 years on, you'd still be doing the same thing, I'd have laughed at you. I said, you're insane. There is no way it's going to last us that long. We thought we'd have our five minutes of, yeah. you know, five minutes in the limelight and that would be it. Yeah. But, you know, obviously it turned out differently. Yeah. Congrats, brothers. 30 years. That's that's a testament right there. Thirty years of, of hard work does pay off. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's say things moved forward from there. Then we 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 followed up rhythm is a mystery with a, another track called So Right, which again you know we kept Bobby on side for all of this. The same format, pianos. We'd learned a bit about songwriting. We even knew what a verse, a bridge, and a chorus was by that stage. <laughs> Um, that, that track again that did okay um, that, that went into the, the national charts that went into the top 20 reached 20 yeah reached number 20 yeah, number 20 we followed that up again with another track called Don't Stop which again that was you know we'd, again we'd learned a little bit more about that that one into, went into the top 20 again but hadn't recaptured really the magic that we'd got with Rhythm is a Mystery that record was so big we suffered from the fact that we'd created an absolute monster of a track and set the bar so high with trying to follow that. You know, it was a really big ask to follow that track. And really, 
it took us in terms of singles we um it took us right through till 1993 and let me show you to, to, to equal if not better the success of rhythm is a mystery totally inspired by a set by tony humphries yeah yeah let me show you again let me show you it was made in one format which never got released and then we went back to look at it again after by now um basically another big development had happened as well the hacienda kind of waned and faded away slowly it's still open but a new club run by our manager james barton and the guy that started off that i went to school with um called darren hughes darren hughes and our manager james barton got together and darren started off his first job in music was selling merchandise for our band on the road and um, we then gave him the job of collecting VAT tax for us because we were that stupid. We didn't realise we had to do that in the first year and we ended up owing a load of money. So Darren came in, he helped us do that. He helped us sell merchandise and he teamed up with our manager to start a club night in Liverpool. And um, also very much inspired by what was going on you know, sort of 30 miles down the road at the Hacienda. And um, the very first night that we did, um, or how it all came about was my birthday in what year did Cream open? 92. 92. It was my birthday in March, in March 1992. My birthday fell on a Tuesday night. So there was me, Darren had wanted to run club nights, James Barton was already running successful club nights. And we went out for a night out to celebrate my birthday in Liverpool. Um, Liverpool then was nowhere near as vibrant as it is now and on a Tuesday night there basically wasn't much going on. We said, oh, there's a student night down at a place called the Academy on Molston Home Square. Um, that's the only place that's open after 11pm. So just for a late drink more than anything, we went down to the Academy on Molston Home Square and we walked into just the back room of the venue was open. It was quite a quiet night, a Tuesday night. We had a student night on in there. We walked in, it's just a black box of a room with a sound system in the corner, basic lighting, just painted black inside. We're like, I like this place. Something could happen in here. You know, this something really good could happen in here. So we said, right, well, well, we'll see if we can hire the place out for. It was like my girlfriend at the time called Sarah. It was her 21st birthday the week after. Um, so, no, the month after, wasn't it? This was in April by now. So Darren hired out the club to put the 21st birthday on. We got a load of local DJs, Paul Bleasdale, James Barton, Andy Carroll, all came and played for... Uh, you played, didn't you, as well, Russ? I played you, that one, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah I played that one. one of your first ever DJ gigs, wasn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, started playing together Saturday at home. This is where the DJing came into it. So we were, we were predominantly, we were a production outfit way before we were DJs. Um, and we put this night on with dressed the club a little bit we put some red carpet outside we put like you know sort of plants, plants and shrubbery on the entrance of the club we changed it we spruced it up we made it look a little nicer than it normally was and we got a great crowd in we, we advertised the party around town between you know darren james and ourselves you know and we advertised it in the college where my girlfriend went to at the time so we got a mixture of students you know, there's a good gay contingent in there, wasn't there? You know, from the gay scene around Liverpool, and you know, and a group of regular colleagues. It was mainly a friends thing, but we got about sort of three or four hundred people in there for this opening party, and the the people who owned the venue really liked the people that we got in there. So they said one month later, 
And it was Barry Hughes' girlfriend's 21st birthday party. Set another Sarah's birthday party. We put another night on again, dialing up the production again and, you know, dressed the venue a little bit more. And this time, even more people turned up. So at that point, Darren and James and Andy Carroll got together and said, we need to do something with this. So we spoke to the people with the, you know, with, with the club. And it was summer by now, the students had gone home. So they said, when the students come back in September, we want to start a regular night. And they said, well, we love the crowd that you got in. We love the people you've got in here. You know, go for it. So they started the night and in, was it? October. The October of 92 when it started as Cream. October of 1992, Cream opened in one room in the back, back room, well, the back room of the Academy was called the Annex. And they, they, they had the first night there and they called it Cream. And, well, we all know what that went on to become and achieve. Yeah, yeah. When the first... But then they moved the Friday nights. They took the Friday, because of the success of that, because of the success of that, they decided to um, do a Friday night. Now, at the time, doing an all-nighter was really difficult. Councils were really not on side for letting you do all-nighters. Yeah. But somehow, I think with kind of Cream's, I mean, Paul would probably know more about this, but with Cream's, the way they worked, they, they always stayed on side with the, with the authorities. They weren't with the authorities. They weren't with the Basically, what they didn't want to do, they'd seen the mistakes that the Hacienda had made where dodgy people were getting involved and then the police were against them. What Cream did from day one, which was genius, as well as growing the brand, and, you know, working the way up to the scale of resident DJs they were getting, was getting big, you know, guest DJs that they were employing were getting bigger and bigger each week as the club became more and more successful. They were working with the local authority, with the local council, with the police, you know, to make a safe environment for people to come and party all night. I think the way they got round it was that the alcohol licence finished at one thirty. It was only a juice bar from that point onwards, but they managed to get a late licence to stay open until 6am, one night a month, on a Friday, the last Friday of every month when everyone had been paid. So this went on to get more and more successful. They started off with bands, with guests from the UK, people like Andrew Weatherall, Fabi Paris from London, uh, Justin Robinson, who ran a really successful night in Manchester called Most Excellent. Um, they, they progressed from these kind of DJs and then started booking for the Friday night all-nighters. US, they were bringing, started bringing DJs over from the US. There's people like Roger Sanchez, Tony Humphreys and people like that. And out of all of them, I mean, the most inspiring sets to us were Tony Humphreys' sets were just next level. It was, it was unbelievable. It, it was, we, we, we actually took ideas. Bear yeah. in mind, we... Uh, we the thing like I just want to put this point across here, which is quite relevant. As K class, we very, very rarely sampled stuff. Very, yeah. very rarely. No, we, all, we always used fresh and original sounds. Now we did take a drum loop, but let me show you. We took a drum loop for for this mystical. Yeah, but the, the only the only drum loop we took, uh, the only thing that was sampled. No, we sampled two things. We sampled a little. Tiny little snippets, actually. Let me show you of, uh, on the intro. Uh, we took a drum loop, and we took ideas, didn't we, off about yeah. four or five yeah. different records, but just the ideas. Great, the great thing The great thing about Tony Humphreys and the great thing about his set that inspired "Let Me Show You" that night was that he'd drop. He'd be playing sort of like you know soulful vocal, you know soulful house tracks, you know all songs and full vocals and stuff like that. 
And then out of nowhere, he dropped a really heavy techno track into the middle of it, just like a total curveball. That, but the way he played it and the way he programmed his set, it would work. Do you know what I mean? Everything he played had a content to it. That night, we were that blown away by what we'd heard. We'd take so, on set during the night. Let me, let me interject for a second. I've always said the same thing about Tony Irvings because he's a really good old friend of mine. If it wasn't for him, a lot of us would not have the careers we have because he championed records that nobody else would champion. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He played things like Gabrielle Dreams. You know, Nobody like else that, touched that. that. Nobody else touched that record. He was the first. Yeah. He played stuff like that and then segue into like, you know, Kevin Saunderson mix of cameo money with big, heavy, do you know what I mean? Like rave synth stabs and stuff. We'd make it work. You know, the, it, then he dropped things from early that had been a couple of years back that were still hot. Things like Mr. Monday, Future and stuff like that. There's all tracks like that that he dropped in this magical set this night. And again, it was another time that we were that inspired by what we heard that night. that We literally went straight from the studio, from the club to the studio. We went in there and put together the basis of what became the main mix of Let Me Show You, which again went on to be a massive success for us in 1993. Mm -hmm. And as a, as a little joke, I'll just throw a little joke in there. The chords contained uh, three notes, not yeah. two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we've, we've gone off the note on the chords by the way. So you see, so you, the two, the two note chord became the three note chord. Yeah. <laughs> we we progressed. We were learning. We were learning all the time. <laughs> you had no then, keyboard player. Basically, you guys were doing it yourselves. Just no, no, out. Carl, one of the guys that the brothers at that point, he was quite a proficient keyboard player. He was good, do you know what I mean? But again, he was self-taught. He wasn't a classically trained pianist or anything like that. He never had music lessons. He taught himself through sheer hard work. And he came up with, the, you know, the, let me show you, you know, with a bit of guidance, he came up with, you know, the hook on that that is absolutely massive. Do you know what I mean? Um, you know, that, that was his work. From... Let me show you again then, you know, the, the story kind of rolled in. You know, obviously, we had the, the Top of the Pops performance came with that again. By now, we were in massive demand. We were playing live every single week without fail. You know, we took it more live, didn't we? We went yeah. more live. Yeah. Um, you know, we performed live as well, whereas a lot of people used to use playback dats and stuff like that. Our tracks were live, do you know what I mean? The vocals were live. Everything about it was live. So. That, that was going on, the tracks were going on. Then we started getting offers. Well, first of all, we moved into sort of remixing then. Mm. And the remixing came about, I think New Order had an album out, and we hadn't been asked to mix any of it. They'd, they'd asked all these people, but nothing to do with New Order. You know, well, you know, not, and I was obviously a fan from years ago. We all were. We all liked them to an extent. We're like, this isn't right. We should be doing a mix on this. So on, one afternoon in the studio, midweek, we'd been to the pub, at lunchtime, we'd had a few drinks and we were feeling cheeky. So I just picked up the phone, phoned up um, FFR at London Records, who were basically looking after New Order by that stage. It's after Factory had sort of passed away. Um, I just phoned, I was just like really cheeky, phoned up the head of A&R at the time. Who are you? You've got this New Order album coming out. Why the fuck haven't you asked us to do a remix on it? <laughs> and I was like, Oh, sorry. <laughs> and um, basically, they, they came back to us and said, well, here it is, do it on spec, here's the parts. You want to do it, do it. If we like it, we'll use it. Um, we did the remix for them. 
we liked it, they used it, they paid us for it, went really, really well. We did another remix for it, this time on the track we're doing in a, in a day, it was the second New Order remix we did. This time they used our mixers, the A-side mix rather than New Order, they used ours for the radio edit. And you know, New Order went on top of the pops performing instrumentation that we'd written, which was you know, it was part of the remix, which was incredible. The remixes then turned into a really big thing. We started getting off, of, you know, we got offered a remix by obviously the late, great Denise Johnson, the Manchester artist who sadly just passed away. Absolute tragedy. Um, which was her name? We did a, a remix for her called Raise the Rising Sun. We were really finding our feet with how to handle songs by now. I think we're up to four fingers in the chords by now. <laughs> and things were starting to move along really, really nicely. Then we started getting offers to remix like R&B tracks and stuff like that from American labels and from MCA and you know record labels like that. So the Bobby Brown track came to us to complain that game. We were offered to do that. It came to us as a 110 BPM swing beat yeah. pop R&B track. It was just totally like, unrecognisable from what it yeah, turned into. So it's like, how can we make a house track out of this? Mm. So we stripped away all of the drums, all of the original instrumentation. We were just left with the vocal. And um, we said, like, right. So we got it into the sample. We said, right, this needs to go up from 110 BPM. This needs to be at a house tempo of, you know, at least 121 BPM around that kind of mark. The only way to do that at the time was put the vocals into the sampler, one line at a time, time stretch them, one line at a time, and put them. <laughs> On the sequencer, there's MIDI notes, and it took us two days of programming just to get the vocals up to 120 BPM. Do you know what? As Paul's just, just to interrupt, that's Paul saying that I've just got these things going in there, and I'm like, oh God, remembering them days. I'm just remembering them days. <laughs> I, remember, I remember back then we were using a program called Time Bandit or something like that. To yeah, just that's right. Yeah, that's, yeah, we didn't have any. We didn't have anything that technical. That was advanced for us. So oh, we, yeah. We time bending was like the first of its kind. It was like, whoa. We, we're time stretching one line at a time until it sounded right in the S1000. And um, it, it, it was a, then it came to the middle bit with a rap in the middle of the track. And it was like, well, this isn't going to work. There's too many lyrics in this. This isn't going to work at 120 BPM. So what we did, we had to figure out a way of dropping the tempo from 120 back down to its original tempo of 110, which we did on a thing called System Exclusive within MIDI, which was like a really hard thing to program. Then we had the rap in the middle of the song at 110 BPM, and then stage by stage we did a piano break with block chords, and on each block chord it sped up by a couple of BPM to the point where it came back to 120 BPM pretty seamlessly in one go. And the whole programming of that drop section took about a day to do. Oh, we, just took forever. Yeah. we just finished making it work at night. We were saving the data on the S1000, the sampler, at the time at the end of the studio session, about 2 a.m. in the morning. We're shutting everything down. We see Carl, who was with us at the time, lean over to the power switch on the wall while the sampler was saving and turn off the power switch on the sampler, which meant we lost all the work that we'd just done that day. Ooh, it like vanished in front of us. <laughs> it's oh. like slow motion. Two days of work just pissed away in two secs. Yeah, exactly. So well, you've got to understand that we spent God knows how many days just pissing away doing nothing in the studio anyway. So that you know, what was another two days? 
Yeah. <laughs> you blocked out the room. It was your room. You should take the <laughs> yeah. yeah. take the drink. I mean, then, from then onwards, I mean, obviously that remix went on to be a massive success. Um, went on to be the, the biggest, one of the biggest selling dance records of that year. It went to number three in the charts. It virtually relaunched Bobby Brown's career over here. So the remix offers just flew in from that point. Um, it was just crazy, you know, bigger and bigger artists. Mm. I remember that year, you know, we were getting like your Juliet Robertses, Janet Jackson, Luther Vandross, Simon Dunmore, who worked for A&M Records at the time, started coming to us for remixes with really good projects as well. We were doing the same kind of calibre of mixes after a while that, you know, people like Frankie Knuckles, David Morales, all the Death Mix boys. You know, in the UK, we were doing the same budget projects that they were doing. And it was just amazing because, again, these were all guys that we totally looked up to. And mm. it was an incredible time. I remember going to the new music seminar when it was still in New York that year, in about 96, 97, sometime around then. We got a meeting with Judy Weinstein, the Death Bix. As you'll probably know, she was a woman with a fearsome reputation for telling things how they were. We went in for a meeting with her. So, so and I remember walking to the door, she went, ah, So you went to 920 class. Broadway? Is that where you went to 920 Broadway? Yeah, that's the one. I remember walking through the door there. She was sat behind the desk. We walked in. She looked and says, ah, K-Class, you guys are beginning to piss me that was the point where you realized we'd, we'd made it with remixes and stuff like that oh because every was, time you were having to go up against death mix yeah yeah exactly but there was there was a question of going up against them it was a question of admiration because we admired so much what those guys were doing do you know what i mean we really really did those guys cnc music factory were a big inspiration for us as well yeah, yeah. Well, let me clarify. David, David Cole with massive inspiration. Yeah. Let me hang on. Before we go any further, let me clarify something to everyone. You know, nowadays, everyone, you're hearing remixes, and the remixes you're hearing is that they're using the stems or the original parts of the songs. In these days, what was happening was, if you listen to the to the guys, they were talking about stripping everything down to the acapella. And then yeah. it was more yeah. of the issue of, not necessarily was it a remix anymore. These are classified as a reproduction in a sense, because it's Absolutely. new. Absolutely. Yeah. New everything. The only thing we were all using in those days was the vocals. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Yeah, the, the absolute epitome of what went on with that as well was Bobby Brown, the Bobby Brown track. We replayed every note in that track. Every note apart from the vocal was new to our mix. Now, we were under no illusions. We knew what deal we were signing off on when we did that deal. You know, they offered us, I think, it was like £6,000 flat fee to do the mix, or they were going to offer us £3,000 and then points on the sales. But we kind of thought, I don't know, do you know what I mean? Bobby Brown's you know, his career's kind of not at its peak anymore. We'll take the money and run, we'll take the 6,000 and forget the points on the sales, which ended up to be like a massive mistake because it went on to be such a phenomenal success. Mm. But, you know, all the PPL and the other radio play payments and stuff like that over the years, we don't get anything for well, the PPL we do, but, you know, the PRS and stuff, we were never credited as, as writers on those things, even though half, the vast majority of all the instrumentation on the version that people know, was all us. Well, yeah. that's what Judy Weinstein fought for. She yeah. was the one that yeah. fought for that. I remember that whole big thing. We were all discussing it back then. She wanted her producers 
to remixing, which was Morales, Knuckles, Satoshi, Tommy, and that whole gang to get some points because these records were being strengthened with a whole new composition. And it was yeah. not fair. Even Eric Cupper spoke about it, that he was like, we need to be compensated because, you know, these records becoming platinum, golden platinum success. And the yeah. original mixes were dogged, doggy. Yeah. 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 But is it Lover. Dream Lover, Mariah Carey. That record was massive yeah. off David Morales, not because of the original yeah. record. Yeah. Well, exactly. Bobby Browns, who can play that game, I, I actually, I don't think anyone actually even knows what the original mix it even sounds like. Doesn't it And we don't care. Yes. <laughs> we don't care because we love what you did and that's all we cared about. We wanted to dance mixes. And we didn't care. Yeah, yeah. A lot of us who were yeah. diehard nightclub DJs could care less about the Radio 7-inch. We wanted the full yeah. long mix. Well, you another know? funny story with, Bob, with Bobby Brown. Uh, we did get told by somebody from the Manchester Music School that the chord structure is not a classic chord structure, but that's oh, the yeah, beauty of not being classically trained musicians. We've come up with something in the verse that works chords, basically, again, but they can't yeah. work. Yeah. The way things developed anyway from that point for us then was that the, the remixes kind of took over everything, didn't they? Because yeah. we, were earning, yeah. Yeah, we were earning good money for them. You know, we're not going to go into the fees. Let's you know talk I mean? about, wait, 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 wait. How many remixes were you doing a month at that time? We're doing about four, four. four months. It takes yeah. a week, you know, with pre-programming, you know, because things took a lot longer then. It takes you a week from sort of time-stretching the vocals, programming the beats, arranging the songs. You know, we had people in that, you know, we'd have, like, programmers like Leon Roberts, who went on to work with Danny Tanaglia, and Matthew Roberts' brother. And these were great people that came in and helped us with programming and speeded the process up no end. You know, and they had an input as well, Joe. You know? I mean, you can't forget these guys. You know, they were instrumental in these mixes as well. We had other engineers that come in sometimes, you know, on bigger mixes and stuff and help us. But the vast majority of it was engineered by Andy Williams, who's no longer part of the cycle, unfortunately. Um, but the, the, the remixes kind of took over everything. The, the live performance sort of faded away and took a back seat at this point because the remixes were just everything. And the remixes to us sort of rose to a pinnacle where we got asked to remix um, Frankie Knuckles and Adiva, what do you want for me for Virgin America? And... To my, I mean, to me personally, that is our best ever, but still my fate, you know, I think is our best ever work to this day. As a piece of music, again, we took all the original backing track away and we just worked off the vocal. And the way that track progresses musically and the feeling we've got, we have, by now we've brought in an external keyboard player, a guy called John Dennison, who'd worked on like Manchester R&B tracks, you know, bands like 52nd Street, stuff like that. So he really knew those soulful R&B chords. He knew how to make these records sing. And he came in and just came up with the most wonderful set of keys you've ever heard on that track. You know, very much influenced by that Eric Copper kind of vibe, you know, Death Mix kind of vibe. We have like big sort of gospel organ rises in it and stuff. And it's just an inspiration. To this day when I listen to it, it's an instrument, inspirational piece of music. We've been told that Frankie really, really liked this track. Do you know what I mean? He was really impressed. He was playing the remix out, he's, you know, he's absolutely hammering our version of it. And it's about 10 years ago now, wasn't it? It must be. We went to ADE in Amsterdam. Probably longer than that, Paul. Yeah, probably longer than that. Yeah. But we, we met Frankie at ADE mm. 
in Amsterdam and he pulled us at a show he was doing, he pulled us to one side and said, that remix you did for us is the favorite, my favorite remix that's ever been made of one of my pieces of work. He goes, it's absolutely inspirational. And we are like, you know what? Now we've been told that by you, we can pretty much give up. That's our career yeah. finished. <laughs> Get no higher than this. Do you know what I mean? That's us finished. <laughs> but, um, Again, none of us ever knew this, that Frankie even had that much admiration for that mix until yeah. he told us this. May Frankie yeah. Knuckles live on forever and ever through all of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still to this day, to this day. Mm -hmm. So, so here we go. We're monkeying around with Eastern Bloc with a demo, and then all of a sudden now we have a real business model. Yeah, yeah. Every week we have to go to work. We have to make coffee. We have to sit down. We have to assemble everybody. We gotta get these records done because there's deadlines. Mm -hmm. Happy. Are you touring too as DJ? Yes. Yeah, it's funny how it's through Cream, which started DJing as well, more DJing than, than live work by this point. So it was a seven day a week job. You know, you're in the studio from 11 a.m. till 2 a.m. every morning, 11 a.m. in the morning, right through till 2 a.m. in the morning, five days a week, straight out the studio at the weekends, straight on the road to DJ, collapsed on a Sunday evening for a few hours, straight back into the studio Monday morning. And this went on for. Four or five years, would you say, Ross? Constantly with the remixing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And again, yeah, this went on. And the, I sort of documented this again recently, sort of early 2000s. In early 2000s as well, we, the big thing, we got nominated for a Grammy, didn't we? For, yeah, um, 2002. It was 2002. Yeah. yeah, which came completely out of nowhere. It was a real surprise to us. Um, we got nominated for Samantha Mumba, Baby, Come On Over. Um, we were the first ever UK artist to be nominated in the Best Remix category. We didn't win it. Deep Dish won it that year, but we actually got to go over to LA for the ceremony and stuff like that, which was, you know, for four lads that started out in school that were told that we'd achieve nothing and we'd be nothing, all of a sudden there we are at the Grammys. Yeah, just to be nominated, to get down to that last yeah. five, it's like, yeah. it's like the Oscars, isn't it? It's the musical Oscars. It's like you get down to the last five and you're hoping that, your name gets called, pulled out the envelope. Unfortunately, yeah. it didn't. But, yeah. but, uh, Did you guys so, ever argue as far as a group is K-Class? or you? Uh, what's the pecking order as far as how this workflow rolls for you guys? Uh, do you know what? And this is the God's honest truth. We're now minus two members that we used to be. The split with them leaving was completely of their own. They just wanted to go off and do new things. Um, and between us, Ross, honestly, have we ever had an argument? I, you see, I'll say this now, right? I love Paul to bits. He's like my yeah. brother. And, I, yeah. and I'll use an expletive in this when I say he's like my fucking brother. Because yeah. that's how it is. And, and and I'll say the same as well about Bobby. But you see, for, for, for Paul's wife, Bobby, Bobby's like, she's like my sister. Do you know what I mean? It's like, we're, we're, family. we're family. That's how it is. We're family. And we're, we've, yeah. never, we've never had so much. I know this is stupid. We might disagree on the odd things, but we've never ever had heated words, ever. No, never. And do you know why it is? Because I don't think we take ourselves seriously enough to do that. We're not precious about ourselves. So you're you still know. playing around, pretending to be in the business? Playing on no, the it's respect. We respect each other's opinion. So we say, say like, Paul might say to me, what do you think of this? And I'll, and I'll say, oh, well, I'm not keen on that. And then, and then it might be the same way. I'll say, Paul, what do you think of that? We respect each other's decision. And if you've got respect and you absolutely... You know, you totally respect the other person's opinion, and you, you you're not, you know, you're not going to kind of like 
fooled yourself that you say, oh, my way or the highway. Yeah. You respect each other's opinion and that's how it is with us. Yeah. And that, that's the way it's always been. It's the way it always will be as well. And we, we again, now we'll go back to the story, moving the story along now. You know, it's not all been a bed of roses. It's not all been brilliant. It's yeah, not tell all us been... some of the dark parts. What happened? What were some of the horror shows that you had to do? Oh, man. Well, the, the, again, around 2000, musical taste changed. The tempo of everything speeded up. Trance music became massive in the UK. And the traditional house sound, as was, started to wane a little bit and then there was a big wave another resurgence in so-called progressive house which was really sort of tracky loopy and repetitive which again was never really our sound and you know in the early 2000s our popularity kind of waned a little bit we weren't getting the fees for remixes we were used to be getting we had a massive big recording studio that we'd built and poured hundreds of thousands of pounds into we actually bought a nuclear fallout shelter from the ministry of defense and that was decommissioned after the Cold War ended. And we got the guy who designed the Verona Opera House to come in and do all the acoustics and build a massive, big, beautiful mixing room in there with literally hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of equipment in there. But as we finished building this with all this massive analog kit and a beautiful Colorack desk with all Neve components and EQs and compressors and stuff on it, all, the, all Neve dynamics across this massive, big desk, all of a sudden, the thing to do was to go digital and we saw the studio shrink around us and everything came more and more into the box more and more plugins and stuff like that and it was no, more, probably a little bit alien to us really and as things shrunk and went into the box the studio started running up debts we ended up owing a whole pile of money to our you know to the landlords who had the building on the long-term lease from and all of a sudden we were struggling and we, you know, we were, we were doing like, we ended up getting landed with massive big tax bills because all of a sudden we went from earning a lot of money to not earning as much money. You know, things got tough for a few years. Um, the death of vinyl, the death of vinyl yeah, didn't help us vinyl, either, did it? The start, the start of, you know, of MP3 file sharing and stuff well, like that. Just about the time when LimeWire. Yeah, and, exactly. And all that stuff came out where you can get, you can download all the stuff for free. And also that other thing um, uh, where you're able to get all the MP3s come out. And oh, yeah. I know. I know. I remember Napster, wasn't it? Napster, yes. The, Napster, the advent yeah. of Napster, yes. Yeah. All of a sudden, the only, there was no money in dance remixes. All of a sudden, the only remixes that were paying money then were like pop records. We ended up like doing radio versions for bands like The Cause and people like that, another level. And it was... You know, I'm not saying we, we enjoyed doing them because it's a new challenge, it's a new thing to get into, but we were doing these things to pay the tax bills, to pay stuff off. And we'll be honest, you know, we did tracks then that, you know, you don't, you don't shout about on your CV. No, 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 they were literally for the money. I can actually stamp the time when this all changed within two seconds. Yeah. Yeah. The buildings came down around 9-11, 2001. And I remember yeah. here in America, in New York, the dance music industry within two weeks yeah. was closed. Record yeah. labels closing, major labels with dance departments gone. So all those big remixes, as far as everybody getting commissions, to, to like yourselves, myself, whoever it would be, masters of work, that kind of stopped like mm -hmm. instantaneously. 
it was just crazy. The whole thing started to fold around us, but we sold it on. Two of the guys that we, we decided, we made a decision that we had to sell the studio. We sold all the equipment off as a one-job lot because you know, save arguments as to who got what bits of equipment. We sold the whole lot as a going concern. It took us about a year and a half to get the, the studio sold. It was massively stressful doing all of that. Through the stress of all of that, two of the people that were with us, Carl and Andy, decided that they'd had enough and they were moving on to pastures new. Um, My head went west for a while. Yeah, you know, Russ, had, uh, yeah, you suffered uh, like it mental health issues do it all. Yeah, but we, but we, we, yeah, we stuck with each other. We carried on. Hold on, Paul. We missed that, Russ. You had mental issues through that time, or just period? Yeah. So I, I, by by two thousand and seven, I had um, issues going on within my personal life as well. Um, I'd kind of. Uh, there had been a build-up. The doctor said it had been a build-up for about six, seven years, probably from 2001, 2002. Yeah. Um, I got to 2007 and, and my head was all over the place and I, and I, I just couldn't deal with everything and, and pop. And, yeah. and, and I just had to go to the doctor and, and I, I was, yeah, it wasn't wasn't a good time. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's it wasn't never. great. It wasn't great. Worth noting through all this, though, that we carried on playing. We never stopped. Do you know what I mean? So we're still out DJing every weekend. The gigs weren't as big and as prominent as we wanted. Do you know what I mean? You'd be travelling the length of the country and, you know, you'd, turn, you'd be playing for dodgy agents and stuff like that. And, you know, we'd be sort of staying up all night to travel down to Plymouth to play in front of 30 people. Do you know what I mean? Which is like four hours, five hours drive away. You know, th things weren't great for a while. But then all of a sudden we started getting to grips with, you know, first of all, MySpace comes along, then Facebook, Twitter, things like that. And we find out that we can engage directly with our audience all of a sudden. It's a new way of doing things. But, you know, we can engage. There's people out there that still want to know about us. And we can get directly to them without going through a record label all of a sudden. And this, this, this is like, you know, this reinvents us then. Then we start doing like a weekly Month, monthly or weekly radio show where we're playing all the new music that we like as well as a few classics from back in the day and things start to build again then the gigs slowly start picking up a little bit me and Russ, I'm having to teach myself because Andy who left us was our main engineer so you know, he left us in about 2006 2007 mm. 2007 we left as well with no engineer so I have to teach myself basically from nothing or watching YouTube tutorials to, and the bits that I picked, the little bits I picked up off Andy along the way, I had to teach myself how to engineer. Russ could program and use logic. You know, I had to learn all, you know, the engineering mix downside of it and stuff like that, which we did. We started doing our own productions again. We got new management through a guy called Bas Janssen, who used to run stealth records for Roger Sanchez. Bas yes. was inspirational to us, do you know what I mean? He, brought us more into the digital age, showed us how to do things again. Still, we're still playing every single weekend. The gigs are improving again now. Our profile's building again. Starting to do releases on digital labels, start our own label called Class Action, which we never really put our heart and soul into, but we got up to about 20 releases on that. Things are starting to build and build and build. Around this time, we had the idea, we got back in touch with Bobby around this time as well and said, look, yeah, what, we need to start doing the live thing again. 
so Bobby starts doing a few PAs and stuff where we're just using the backing track with Bobby singing live vocals in the middle of our DJ sets. This starts really taking off again for us, you know, and getting us loads more bookings. There's a big interest in music, you know, in old school house starts appearing in the UK around this time as well. <clears throat> so people want to hear these tracks from back in the day again. This all starts building and building and building. Then all of a sudden we say, right, in 2012... 2013, 2013, 2013, we took the live act again. We said, right, we're going to put the full live stage, you know, the full stage act back together again. We're going to go back to doing everything live. Obviously, we'd lost Carl, who was our keyboard player, Andy, who was our mix engineer and stuff like that. But I'd learned that by that stage. We brought in a guy called Davos, Dave Clough, who already had like an online YouTube smash doing a piano house classics medley which had propelled him it had gone viral hadn't it and he understood house music back to front and inside out so we brought him as our keys guy there was a club percussionist stroke drummer called Pav who was really big on the UK club scene we brought oh, him yeah. Pav's a great great percussionist we brought Pav in to do um, all the percussion and stuff like that and then we got booked to do our first live show Again, it's our first live show in 18 years. And it was at Bowler's Exhibition Centre in Manchester. It was a massive event. There's about 6,000 people there. And we were on the bill within the city, and they actually put us on the bill above in the city. And that night, the return to like live performance that night absolutely tore the place to pieces. <clears throat> and again, it propelled us up to another level. At that stage, we decided that our agent, our main agent at the time, was more of a hindrance than a help. So we parted company with those and said, you know what? We know everyone. Everyone knows us. Everyone knows how to get hold of us. We're going to do our own bookings from now onwards. Again, that propelled things up to another level. Um, you know, the bookings came in thicker and faster. We were making more money because we weren't paying commission. We were organising it. We were doing a full-time job of running our own diary ourselves. The work went up straight away by 40%. Our income went up by 40%. Everything was, you know, was on the mend again. We were still starting to work more and more with Cream again because some of the old firm were back, you know, in charge of running that place again. And the interest in sort of like Cream Classic Nights, you know, which is where they played all the big anthems from Cream back in the day, that started taking off again. We started doing more touring with Cream. Then in 2016, um, Pete Tong came along. 15, 15 is a five-year anniversary this year. Yeah, yeah. It was... Um, Pete Tom, we were sat in one night on TV and we were like flicking through the TV channels. All of a sudden, Facebook lights up loads of people are sharing this Pete Tong Ibiza classical thing where Pete Tong's got an orchestra playing house classics. So we'll, we'll get that. We switched it straight onto the TV, started watching it. We're like, oh my God, what a concept. This is absolutely amazing. Look at that. You know, this sounds absolutely stunning. We got to the end of it without blown away by it. You know, we stopped it put it on plus one and watched the entire thing over again from the start. And we were inspired by this. And remember that, you know, straight away I'd phoned you up. I'd know Russell, have you seen yeah. this? Have seen what's going on on TV? Yeah. This looks and sounds incredible. So <clears throat> we were sort of blown away by, you know, creating a big storm. Then we heard the Hacienda were going to do their version of a show similar to that, which they did, they put together. Then within, before their show was even out, Cream approached us and said, do you want to get involved and help us produce our own version of you know the classical show? Which like, yeah, we jumped it. We had an idea. You know, we had all the knowledge of how to put it together. 
how to structure the tracks. We just took like a cross section of Cream's biggest tracks and put them together into one show, helped produce the show. And um, we came up with the running order. All the, we knew all the source samples and sounds and stuff like that that we needed to put for the bits the orchestra couldn't play. Um, and an engineer called John Craig came in and recreated the backing tracks to it all. Um, and we put together a show, but Cream in a masterstroke for where they were going to put this show. Somehow, Lord alone knows how they managed to do it, managed to get Liverpool Anglican Cathedral to host the event in. Now, this was unheard of. I mean, this cathedral is something else. I think it's the biggest cathedral in Europe, and it is an absolutely stunning space. And they were they somehow managed to get to put a club event on in there. You know, it's probably because we had the orchestra with us, they let us do it. But I remember going to this venue as a child with school um, and being blown away by it at the time. It's like, this place is just awe-inspiring the second you walk through the door. And going back in there, like, you know, 35 years later, you know, after I'd left school and coming back to see this place again, it just seemed even bigger, even more grandiose and even better than I remembered it being. The only thing was that, you know, when we came to work in there, if you clapped your hands and there was an 11-second reverb on the room, which made the acoustics in there an absolute nightmare. We had no idea till the day that we did the show, even if it was going to work. We knew the orchestra and the vocals would sound incredible. But yeah, we didn't yeah, we didn't know how the drum beats would react, but they got a really good audio company and they got Adlib Audio in to do it. They analysed the room, they put delays in. And the second we ran up the backing beats for the orchestra to play up about two days before when we were testing it, we heard that one up. It was like, my God, they've got it right. This is gonna work. This is gonna sound incredible. And it the experience of being in that building and hearing those tracks played like that. We recreated the backing tracks, the electronic pieces, really faithfully to the originals. We reverse engineered all the tracks. John Craig did a brilliant job of you know making, you know, mixing the tracks down and making them sound really tight. But to hear the tracks sound exactly as you knew them, but then with this third-dimensional sort of element of an orchestra playing all the strings and all the sections that they could recreate amongst it just took these tracks to a next level and the experience of being in that building hearing those tracks played and delivered in such an open three-dimensional way just blew people's minds there's people in the audience the first time we did that the first time we did that literally in tears it was i mean some of the, there's a lot of these other classical shows that have been around and done the rounds that are absolutely stunning and sound great but that show the first time we did that in 2016 in that venue the way that sounded and the lighting and laser and production show that cream put on with it was just like nothing i've ever seen or heard you know above being in the hacienda above being in anything the actual like sensory overload that you got from being in there and seeing the production and hearing these tracks delivered this way was like nothing anyone in there had ever seen before it really was pretty special as you as you can imagine the um the actual organ the um cathedral organ in there is a very very big instrument well it's the and, biggest uh, organ in the world what's the biggest church organ in the world yeah we we um we one of the tracks that we, that we had in the show had an organ in it, it was felix, so, felix, yeah, felix yeah so they came up with the idea that they were going to incorporate using the cathedral organ within the show now they only did it they didn't do it in the sound check. They only did it actually as the show took place. 
And Paul and me stood on stage and it seemed to suck the whole air out of the room around you. That it was it was absolutely just mind blowing to hear the organ, the actual cathedral organ, within the within the whole show like that was just unbelievable. It was, it was like, absolutely phenomenal. It's like every I've never heard or experienced a sound like it since. It was like the room was already reverberating. Obviously, you've got eleven seconds on the room. All of a sudden, when this church organ kicked in, playing the riff of Felix, don't you want my loving? It's like every molecule of air in that room started to move around you. It was the weirdest experience ever, and people were just blown away by what we heard. The guy that played the organ was a genius as well because there was such a delay. He had to play something like about a second and a half ahead of what he was hearing for it to be in time, but he got it nailed. He listened back to the recording, and he nailed it bang on as well. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, a combination... I mean, it's a real long story short, we've been going on a long time now, but a combination of starting our live act, starting to manage the digital thing and stuff like that, and starting the Cream Classical shows, which culminated last year in doing a show in front in a park in Liverpool, Sefton Park. We did Cream Classical in the park, where we attract you know, the show attracted an audience with Cream Classical headlining of 34,000 people in an outdoor arena. And things had built up to a brilliant extent. We were doing loads of festivals again. The live act was playing bigger and better festivals all the time. Our diary for 2020 was packed. You know, in January, we'd filled nearly the whole year. We were averaging two or three shows a weekend. Things were looking better than ever. We were due to do Cream Classical in the park again this summer, which this year was going to be 40,000 people was the target. Bigger and better than ever, better production than ever. And by the end, by the end of February, things were looking great. And then in March, you know what happened. And by mid-March, everything was gone, and everything stopped dead. So now, how are we coping with this now, guys, with the COVID? And you're finding it really hard. Finding yeah. it really, really hard. Um, guys, am I okay yeah. to duck out for one second here? Because yeah. I, I, it's a moment. Really, really. I really need to run to the toilet, so I'll let Russ do. Let Russ, 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 Russ help us with this. Yeah, no, the, um, I'll, I'll be back momentarily before I have a nasty accident on air. <laughs> I'll be back. Don't worry, Seamus had to do the same thing. So, yeah. Russ, how are you? I'll wash my hands as well. Don't worry. <laughs> um, it, it's hard. It's very, very hard. I mean, I haven't worked. Well, neither of us have worked um, since, um, well, since March. Uh, we did we did a what they class as a socially distant show um, in August, start of September. We did two three shows, I think, for then, and that's the only that's the only money we've kind of earned sort of during this period. Um, yeah, it's 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 really really difficult. It's really really harsh. Um, there's. The UK government at the moment are going on about the arts and they're saying, go out and retrain. And I'll just throw this out there. I'll throw this into the equation. I'm 54. If I need to retrain, it's going to take a minimum of two years. That will put me at 56. Okay? Who is going to really want to employ a guy of 56 who for the last 30 years has a CV of DJing in festivals, nightclubs, and being in a recording studio. 
it's not really a CV that really many people would want to take on board. So the whole retraining business, in theory, sounds great, but in reality, it's not really one that you could kind of... It's not something that is going to be beneficial to myself anyway, in, um, you know, in that respect. But you know, it, it is, it, it's difficult at the moment. Things are hard, and I'm, I'm sure it's the same for you, Lenny. I'm sure it's the same for you. Uh, it, it, I've told people this all the time. I've just, thankfully, I've done some remixes. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. But my whole calendar completely stopped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it doesn't. It's, it, it's, it's again. It's not good. It's not good on the again on the mental health side. You know, from a personal point of view, I've I've kind of got my demons under control from what I said of 2007. I'm, I'm under control. I just get odd days. I get odd days, as I'm sure everyone does. And, and, and I know everyone does get odd days of where they're down. And I do get odd days. But I don't have the demons like I had in 2007. But this is not helping kind of the mental health state as to where we're at at the moment with everything. Because everything, it's not just, it's not just what is going on. That Okay, you haven't got work. It's not just that. It's the whole negativity that, is a, that surround seems to be surrounding everything at the moment. Everything that you you turn on the, the TV, and all you see is negativity. That is that is all yeah. you see is negative. Exactly, exactly right. Back in the room, by the way, with clean hands. <laughs> <laughs> but um, let's let's make sure everybody knows. Let's make sure everybody knows. Up in the Nottingham, Nottingham area, is it not where? where um, yes, Robin Hood area. Yeah, yeah Nottingham. Nottingham. Right. No, no, Nottingham. They did a complete lockdown again, correct? I don't know. No, in Liverpool. 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 Manchester's in the second highest level of lockdown, which is why we're not allowed to be with each other again at the moment, which is why we're having to do this remotely. Yeah. But it, 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 it's been really tough. I mean, in, for instance, in our household, I mean, a big part of the story or a big part of our story as well that I didn't mention as well is that from 2007 onwards, when Bobby started working with us again, um, by 2012, me and Bobby, who had been lifelong friends, ended up getting married, um, which is, and we now obviously live together. So we're, you know, she, our entire household income, because we both do exactly the same thing, it's both of our full-time jobs, our income from our entire household has stopped dead. Do you know what I mean? There is, there is, she, no, is she there? there? She's, in the, she's in the other She's in the other room. I'm sure she's. Yeah. I will ask her, but I can virtually guarantee that she'll run back. Go run back. I made Michael Gray run around the block to get his award. Go run and get. <laughs> <laughs> this is that I'll kind try, of show. Super Lenny. Make Lenny happy. Make everyone happy around the world. No, but you know yeah. what? Here's the thing I've been telling people. You must yeah. check in on everybody because depression is a mother. It's terrible. Yeah. And yeah. I'm afraid we may lose some talented people from this. Lenny, I'm going to say something else as well now. And I think that this is a really relevant point within the whole side of depression. People say you need to talk. I get that. I understand that. But what I will say is I go back again to 2007. In 2007, I did not want to talk to anybody. The last thing I wanted to do was to tell people how my head was because I didn't want to burden them with what I was going through. Because in my mind at that point, I was 
useless, I was worthless. I, I, and that, that was what was in my head. And to me, within depression, that is the hardest thing. If you need to cross that barrier before you can talk, and it's okay. And I understand it. It's, the sentiment is great. The sentiment is fine for, for mental health. Yeah, you need to talk. But sometimes when people are that depressed, talking is not what they want to do. What they want to do, I haven't got the answer because each and every person is individual. But sometimes talking is not the so answer. Let's just put it like this. At least check in on people. Are you okay? Yes. yes. Are you alive? Yes. Is everything okay? Yes. We so know that. Just asking, you know, we, we see it now. We'll, we'll see posts by people on, you know, friends and stuff on Facebook. And, you know, they'll put these, you know, posts that look a bit dark and a bit negative. And it takes you no time at all to just pick up the phone and just say a couple of words. I'm like, are you okay? How's things yeah, yeah. doing? How are you doing? How are you today? Yeah. That's all it takes, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, sometimes that can make a big difference with people. But it's hard, you know, especially people in our industry at the moment. It's horrendous. We've done nothing else but this for 30 years. Wait, but hold on. you got to understand something. <laughs> Everybody's very proud, and you know that. And they don't want to show this side that we're hurting or, you know, things are not hunky-dory like we want everyone to see us. Because, look, at the end of the day, you guys are performers. You want to be looked at as cutting right there, top-notch in every way. This looks like this is not what you the kind of signal that you're sending out normally. Pride and love and all that shit. But now pandemic has changed it. It's changed everybody's viewpoints. It's missing the it's missing the performance side of it as well. I mean we've never we've I don't know I think speak for both of them, all three of us, you know, Bobby included. Well, probably especially, we've never been in it to be famous. We've never been in it to, you know, for everyone to know who we are or anything like that. We keep a low profile, we keep our heads down, we get on, we do what we do. But what I do love from the performance aspect and what I do miss is making people happy. You know what, we came back after from March through till, when did we do Social Avenue? We did at the end of August, that's what I was saying yeah. to Lenny. We've done three shows, haven't we? Three social yeah. distance. Yeah. You're lucky because I can't even get anywhere to play in America. Everything's closed. <laughs> by, the, by, by the time we did, by the time we did the Social Avenue thing, the, 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 we haven't played in months. We came there, you know, it was socially distanced gig. It all put together. The music was still quite loud, you know. And when Russ dropped the first track with a drop down as we came on, and seeing the reaction and just seeing the smiles and the joy that it brought to people's faces, you know, when we started playing. It was, it was almost, it was emotional, do you know what I mean, to get that feedback back again, just for that short space of time. And it's things like that that you'll miss, and it's things like that that, you know, you don't crave the attention, but you crave making people happy. You crave that interaction with people on the dance floor. Yeah. People on the dance floor crave that interaction with each other, and it's all gone. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's tragic. It's horrible. You know, it's just like your worst living nightmare has come true all around you. It's crazy. It's terrible. That's crazy. Come on, guys. Are we going to get through this or what? Are we going to live in prosperity? We are going yes. to get through it. Yes. There's going to be a vaccine. It's going to come in the spring and things are going to get better. And I have every confidence in what I'm saying there. Yeah. 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 We're all going to get through it. And you know what, when we come back, we've been busy writing tracks now, 
and stuff like that. We've got an army of new music coming. And when we come back, we're coming back bigger, better and stronger than before. You know, we've had time to think about things. In, time, in a way, we've had time to decompress. We've had time to reset completely. Do you know what I mean? We realised, we sat down at the start of lockdown. And me and Ross said, you know, on the first few Saturday nights when we didn't go out and play, we said, do you know that the longest we've gone since 1996 when we started DJing, the longest period we've ever gone without a gig is three weeks. Loads yeah. of people within our scene have taken years away or, you know, a couple of years out, six months out, whatever. We've never stopped. We've carried on all the way through relentlessly. And, you know, but me personally, you know, again, probably mentally and physically, by the time lockdown kicked in, I was burnt out. I was, you know, I was done for, do you know what I mean? I was, I was fit to drop physically, emotionally, mentally. You didn't realise until you stopped what state you managed to get yourself into. It, you know, it, it really, you know. So lockdown at first it had some positives, do you know what I mean? I've got myself fitter, I've got myself healthier, I've cut right back on drinking. I've started eating a really healthy diet, do you know what I mean? And I physically, mentally, you know, mentally to an extent as well, I feel better than I have done in a long time. But, oh, my God, am I missing that interaction with the dance floor? Do you know what I mean? I really am. And it does. It gets me down. Well, we're going to take it right from here now. So I know I, I was privy, everyone, to hear something that these guys are working on. And it's quite such a big thing. Yeah. And they wanted to to introduce it to all of you in your homes around yeah. the world in the UK, of course. And I'll let the boys explain it because they can explain it. It's, it's a really big production. Check this out. Yeah. Well, the story is, I mean, obviously through Cream Classical, we've got to work with the most gifted, talented musicians we've ever come into contact with. Do you know what I mean? There's people that are just way out of our realm. Do you know what I mean? These are proper talented people, the orchestra members, you know, the arrangers, composers, the people who put these shows together are just next level. And it's a whole new world to us. It's been a whole education to us. Now, at the start of lockdown, Cream had organised um, like a drive-in tour for the classical shows, where basically the concept was 13 venues around the country, People driving in their cars because of the social distancing restrictions, but we still do the shows. People get a four metre square around their car to get out and dance. And things are not like normal, but as good as they can be. So with all the orchestra, the musicians, we use like a massive big choir on the show as well, you know, for all the BV, background vocals. Everybody had been preparing for this show. Everybody was just about to start final rehearsals. And then we get the phone call the Monday before it's due to start. The tour is due to start. We'd sold out loads of dates. Some of the dates were doubling up two, show, two performances a day. And all of a sudden, threat of local lockdowns because of COVID, the whole thing's pulled. We were absolutely, at the time, we were going to be the only people on the road doing this. And it was a massive kick in the teeth. So we're all really, really despondent. I set up a group chat message with the choir and you know, the people, all the musicians that we work with most closely during the show, just saying, look, guys, really sorry about what's happened. It's nobody's fault, do you know what I mean? It is what it is. And Jennifer, uh, Jennifer John, the woman who runs the choir in, you know, the, the actual BV choir um, called Sense of Sound, says, listen, instead of us all getting really down about this, 
let's do something positive. Let's all write something together. And yeah, you know, you've got you got your tracks lying around that I could write something over. So um, we had like a track that we'd written with Davos, Dave Clough, our keyboard player um, from the live show. We'd written a track back in 2014 with him. And again, we wrote this track at the time as a piece of music that was not current. It wasn't popular. You know, it wasn't the, the sort of sound of now. It was harking back to our 90s kind of K-classic sound with nice piano chords, lush arrangements. And, you know, more than anything, it was designed for a song. We'd written a couple of top lines over the backing track at the time and nothing had ever really done it justice so we gave it to jennifer to write over she came back with a big bv arrangement a really strong lead vocal um you know top line that she wrote for it and stuff like that um and it, it just came back absolutely awesome so then we we managed to scrape the money together and find a recording studio within the restrictions where we could record the 12 piece choir all socially distanced so we recorded the 12-piece choir, and we've got it sounding really good now. And then at this point, I said, thought, wouldn't it be amazing if we could get the orchestra to perform on it? But, you know, you know as, as you all know from the production world, getting an orchestra to come and perform on a track doesn't come cheaply. Do you know what I mean? Those guys, the clock's ticking when they work. Yeah, their time is everything to them because that's their only source of income. But I asked the question, I said what the situation was, I said, would you be up for getting involved in this? There's no money in it, but everybody, that every single player on this track, no matter how big or small their role is, every penny, if it ever makes a penny, every person gets an equal share of what comes in on it. And everybody, you know, gets the exposure from doing it and stuff like that. And they said, you know what, we'd love to get involved. So the Kaleidoscope Orchestra guys, they got involved. They've gone away. They've recorded each individual part of the orchestra. They've recorded remotely at home on the home studios. Um, Steve Pycroft, who's their sort of tech guy, recording guy, and sort of leader of the orchestra, has mixed all the orchestra stems at home and delivered those. Now, I can't play you the full track at the moment. What I can play you is the orchestra and the keys. I mean, as you said, we don't want any takedowns at later dates. So... We would rather have it. We would rather have it in its raw yeah. elements. What I'll do is I'll play you a little section of just the orchestra and the piano keys, um, about a minute of this. And you must tell me if it's coming through too loudly or too quiet or whatever. But this, this is an absolute world exclusive as well. Nobody outside of a world of, exclusive, right yeah. here on True House Stories, everyone. K yeah. classes, nineties, back to nineties sound. With a full yeah. well, not just K class. It's K class sense of sound in the kaleidoscope orchestra. It's very much K class sense of sound the kaleidoscope orchestra. So this is the orchestration. We're getting tons and of right back right now. completely tons to sleep. Coming in. There we go. Right. Can you hear it, everybody? It sounds. <laughs> Thank you. 
So you played the accompanying part, and that's beautiful. I'm gonna give that a good clap, guys. Got that nineties flavor. Wow. And that, that there's no synths in that. That is real strings, real brass, full orchestra. Not quite sure how many members we've got on that, do you know what I mean? But you're talking 20, 30 people. So so, so, what's the, so what's the plan of action when this is done? How is this coming out? What are you doing with it? Where is it going to be? Where can people get it? What's what's going to be part? What's there's, part no plan, there's no plan at all for it yet. There's no plan at all. We've not even finished the production yet. Um, I mean, obviously, we'd like to get it signed to a decent label and get it the most exposure we possibly can. Um, we're, I mean, at the moment, I'm sat here now with a complete set of orchestra stands, which is a hell of a lot of audio to process. And I've got 138 channels of audio of the choir, various mics and various different spot mics, ribbon mics, dream mics, outrigger mics from the room where we recorded that. I've got 138 channels of audio there to go through to try and mix down and just to get the choir passes to bounce into, to go into the track once we get all those layers in. So what we're looking at potentially doing is we're not sure yet whether we're going to do it. We've got to run the idea properly past everyone, but we're thinking of doing a crowdfunder thing to try and get this mixed down in a really good studio and basically try and raise the money, the budget to get this mixed down in somewhere really, really quality. Oh, you got a studio right here. And that's the self. <laughs> we, could, we, could, we could be on the phone to you very, very shortly. But we, we've got a great setup. We've got a great, you know, it's great for producing dance music setup that we've got here. We, you know, all of our releases come out here. You know, that's another source of income that we've got. You know, so we do online mastering and stuff like that, and production and stem mixing for other people and stuff like that. So we've got a great setup. But what we're looking at doing is really doing this orchestra and this choir. You know, getting it. You know, doing it justice and getting it through a big desk, through a big board. Do you know what I mean? And the, so we're, we're, we're playing around with the idea of setting up a crowdfunder page and basically raising the money through that because we've got no money coming in. We can't afford these things now. You know, I'll make no bones about it. Wait, wait. Clarify, clarify. They have no income. Yeah, zero income. No, Nothing. No income. No. I mean, obviously, we get royalties payments four times a year. From yeah, but that's not enough to the day to day. Not now. It doesn't even cover the rent. Do you know what I mean? It, it's it, it's it's not easy. So we're looking. I mean, we're still toying with the idea of doing a crowdfunder page. And I think yeah, we'll get to cover the the mix down costs of that. That will probably cover. And then if this crowdfunder then goes on to make any more money, then we what's the what what we'll look at doing then is any the money that comes in will divide between every single musician that's taken part on this because they're all in the same boat as us there's a lot of people involved here there's at least 20 people involved with the choir there's well, no, sorry there's 12 people involved with the choir there's at least 20 people on the orchestra and stuff like that and um, you know then the vocalist bobby russ myself and we're all in the same boat we've all got no what's income the name of the song actually what's the name of the song going to be 
But it's going to be Love and Understanding is the name of the track. And the lyrics, the top line, um, we've got written, hasn't been recorded properly yet, but we've got that recorded. And again, it's, it's very topical. If you listen to the lyrics, it's about what's going on now as well. Not directly, but you read between the lines in it, and it's talking about what's happened this year. And people's attitude, and just, the, well, the need now more than ever for love and understanding, for people to just make an effort to get on with each other, because it's not that fucking hard, do you know what I mean? And this whole world, which has been like you know, the ethos of house music since day one, this whole world would be a better place if everyone just learned to live with each other, accept each other, tolerate each other. Do you know what I mean? It's it's mad that, you know, you look into sort of, you know, sort of physics and space and the universe and stuff like that, it's an outright miracle that any of us are even here in the first place. Do you know what I mean? I'm getting deep now, but it's a miracle that any of us are here in the first place. This planet, we've got such a fucking amazing thing that we have here, and we fuck it up by squabbling with each other. Russ, like Paul, let me say something. My leadership around me says there is no climate change. It's <laughs> not real what you're saying. It's all fake news. Don't listen to scientists. Don't listen to doctors. Don't listen to the lawyers. Go by your own brain. Yeah. This is what you're doing now. Well, don't even get started on that because we've got our own clan here as well. You know, you, you know the um, do it. Yeah. I'm not just talking environment, though. I'm talking about people's attitude to each other. If everybody came together and worked together instead of against each other, the human race is capable of brilliant things, do you know what I mean? Together, not apart, together. The whole ethos of house music, you know, together, that's what I loved about it. You know, we go right back to the beginning of the story to 1988, and the whole thing's come full circle to me. The whole ethos and the whole new way of going out with Acid House and the explosion and you know, the explosion of rave culture, ecstasy culture, the whole thing was togetherness for the first time in a nightclub. For the first time you'd ever see it in this country, there'd be black people, white people, gay people, straight people, lawyers, teachers, football hooligans, thugs, everybody in one place getting on with each other. You know, finding out, talking to each other, finding out about each other's ways, lives, not just the music. You know, we'd be there for the one common purpose for music and our love of music. Right, right. We're not going to clubs to get drunk or to, you know, try and pull and, you know, sleep with people and stuff like that. That was off the agenda completely. It was about the music. It was just about going to dance and meeting brilliant people and interesting people that were completely different to you and came from a different background to you. And... The music's flourished. Music's gone from strength to strength over the years. But, you know, let's be honest, the other sides of it have got a little bit lost somewhere down the way. And that's an absolute tragedy. And if anything this song's saying is everybody needs to wake the fuck up and get back to those values that okay. brought us together in the first place. That's well put, Mr. Paul and Ross. But I always ask the same questions to every artist and every person that steps in this show. Looking back from 87, 88 to now, what would you tell your younger selves? Would you change anything differently to how you are here now? Yeah. <laughs> Don't invest so much money into a recording studio. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Mine would be maybe learn how to play piano before trying to make a track. Well said. Well said. But I got to thank you. I mean, this has been a fantastic show. I couldn't ask for better, better guests. You guys are gentlemen, scholars, hard workers, fantastic remixers, excellent producers, and now live showmen again. Which, yeah. which you started is now where you are going to be ending up back on the stage. Yeah. But we also just wanted to, we just wanted to um, tell you the truth and give you the yeah. truth of how it's been. Yeah. yeah. And people love that. This is yeah. why Two House Stories is a documented show. It works. People are hearing this and they can relate. It's not yeah. all peaches and cream or cocaine and crack. Yeah. <laughs> and champagne. The whole story warts and all. There's been good times, there's been bad times, but you know what? I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah. Not a thing. I'm so happy to call you guys friends. You know, I mean, I'd say yeah. every time I'll say this to you now, I'll say it 30 years ago. If there wasn't this thing called dance music, house music, I never would have met any of you. My world would never have changed. I, I, I've learned so much through all of you because of what we've all experienced. And it's incredible. I can only say thank you for sharing your time and your story with us. It makes this more, even more memorable. So Thank you, Lenny. Oh, thank you, Father. Oh, you know what? Over the years, we've done a lot of interviews. We've talked about a lot of things. Do you know what I mean? Over the years, we've, we've done thousands and thousands of interviews, but this has been the most insightful thing. That I know, speaking from Adam Shorts, you know, me and Russ, we, we all sing from the same hymn sheet. This has been the most insightful and interesting interview we've ever done. Do you know what I mean? And it's the first time we've told our story fully from beginning to end. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, a lot more, there's a lot more craziness and a lot more things that probably aren't well, going to the day together just talking for hours. Uh, I mean, but you covered the most important parts, which was what makes this that much better. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, again, I mean, people couldn't thank us enough. They said, wicked interviews. You guys are immense. I mean, oh, one of the questions somebody asked me was, what door are you using currently? Logic, um, Logic Pro X. Yeah, Logic always has, well, virtually always has been. We started off at very when e It was when E-Magic owned Logic. That's yeah, when we first went to Logic, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, we started off, first of all, using a sequence called Voyatra, which is on the old IBM yeah. computers. Then we graduated to... Um, Cubase on the Atari 1040 ST, wicked rock solid drum swing on that. Um, and then best, there, the best mini clock the ever. No mini clock was as stable as that, like that Atari. Yeah. No yeah. mini clock. Yeah, beast of a piece of plastic. <laughs> really Big was. You have to load up the two, the, the, file, the floppy disk and listen to it. <laughs> yeah, floppy disk. <laughs> and then finally it loads up, and then you go, okay, now we can work. <laughs> we, went, we went from Atari 1040 ST onto Logic running on an Apple Mac copy at the time. Was it yeah. an IBM copy of a Mac? I think we were Yeah, running. it was, yeah. It was, it, was, and it was when Logic was still at 3.0. And had three track, three or four tracks of audio is all you could right. have. And it was yeah. black and white. I think you had about three colours on it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So e Magic. A company called E Magic owned it at the time. Yes. So we've, 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 been, we've been Logic ever since, and probably till we stop recording, until they stop yeah. doing what they're doing. 
Um, yeah. Scott Campbell screaming through Ask the Lads about Street Rave Scotland. What the hell? Oh, that? my, oh, my, oh, my. <laughs> Again, our family um, in Scotland. Throughout the years, there's a massive history between K-Class and Scotland generally. I mean, we were in Scotland the night Rhythm is a Mystery went to number three. We were gigging in Scotland that night. And, it, you know, Scotland and Glasgow especially, we've got a real affinity with. It's our second mm. home. Street Rave. People, Ricky, Julie, John, Boney, all the guys up there are like family to us. You know what I mean? They really are. And the, you know, everybody that's around that club is such a tight-knit community. Um, you know, we, we help them with, the, with some of the production elements on their classical show as well. And, you know, they book us constantly and we just love Scotland. Big up mm -hmm. to everybody, all the Street Bay family. You guys got it tough up there as well. So we're sending love to you as well. And on that note, everyone, I want to thank you again, fellas. I think we covered it all. God bless. We love K-Class. And by one thing I want, I want the damn hoodie. Yeah, me too. I want the K-Class hoodie. Available on our merch store from next week, Lenny. <laughs> <laughs> They're going up you, for sale. You got one, well, you listen, got we'll get you one sorted, Lenny. We'll get you yeah. one sorted. I need one of those for, for the fatty. For the yeah, fatty version, 3X, 2XL, not the one for the UK, the one that's wider. <laughs> We've got just the thing here for you. There you go, man. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, brothers. And Thank you, all ladies. The rest it's been you. an absolute pleasure. And uh, it's never a chore. As we always say, always a pleasure, never a chore. Never a chore. On that one, catch us next week. Right here on True House Stories, 7 o'clock in the UK. It is now 9.17. And it's time for them to put their children to bed. So always time to feed myself. Feed <laughs> like animals. We've got to feed the animals and put them to bed. And all the children have to go to bed. And thank you again. We'll see each other real soon. Take care. One love, one house music. Peace. Peace.